Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? Bunch of jackasses standing in a circle. I prefer the faster way. I am Iron Man. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Assembly Required, an MCU retrospective, the show where we reassemble the MCU piece by piece, movie by movie. I am your host, Eduardo, and I have assembled a very patient pack of podcast performers today because sitting through all of my technical issues, I've got Peaches, I've got Chris, and I've got Robbie here with me, all ready to talk about part two of our Endgame three-part spectacular. How we doing, boys? I just got here. I I'm excited. I, I've <laughs> heard from legends passed down that um, the first is usually the worst, but the second is the best. Oh, God. Episode Third's three gonna is going to have a really hairy chest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I thought it was a polka dot dress. Oh, I, I've heard Harry Chest. I've heard Polka Dot Dress. I mean, Por Que No Los Dos. There we <laughs> go. <laughs> uh, I've also heard so Treasure Chest if someone wanted to be nice. Ooh, Treasure Chest. Yeah. But what's better than a Treasure Chest? How can the second be the best if you get a Treasure Chest in the third one? That, I, I Maybe it's know. filled with, like, bills. Maybe it's a Treasure yeah. Chest filled with, like, like, um your internet service provider bills. That doesn't sound like treasure to me. Surprise. That's a mimic. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So here we are once again, still in the middle of the end game. And today we're going to go back in time. Cause we're going back to the time heist. What are you telling me back to the future was bullshit? But before we do, I just want to thank, take a moment and thank everybody who's been listening to the show all this time. We are creeping up very close to our one-year anniversary of doing this show. So once again, thank you to everybody that's been listening, everybody who's emailed, whether you started at the beginning or today's the first episode you're listening to. Thank you for listening. We very, very much appreciate it. Thanks now, for coming in on part two of one of the last movies. <laughs> yeah, that's another interesting statistic I'd like to keep track of if we could. <laughs> so, let's dive in to everything that has to do with the the middle act, the, the second act of Avengers Endgame. We're going to jump right into it. We start, the 2023 Avengers have divided into three teams and used Pym Particle technology to shrink into the Quantum Realm to exit in various spots in the past to find the Infinity Stones before Thanos had them. We're going to do this a little different this time. Robbie did a fantastic job on the show notes, and rather than go in and talk about the movie and the way the movie presents the scenes, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about them in segments of each time heist piece. So we'll talk about everybody in New York first, then we'll go into whatever Robbie wrote (laughs) next, and then we'll go into whatever (laughs) Robbie wrote after that. Um, But essentially, we're going to tackle it in parts rather than skipping around like the movie does. I think it'll be a lot easier to talk to, and thank you, Robbie, for for doing all that work for us. As a side note, y'all listening, you don't know how much work Robbie puts into getting this show ready. It's frankly absurd. It's... (laughs) 
Think about the amount of work you perceive that I do on this show, and it's the exact opposite. (laughs) (laughs) It's the antithesis of peaches. I have no response to that, so let's get the show going. (laughs) All right. New York, 2012. Captain America, Ant-Man, Iron Man, and the Hulk arrive in the middle of the Chitauri invasion of New York. Hulk goes off on his own. We get a really funny scene of the Hulk smashing things, and then um, Professor Hulk is like, <laughs> and he like throws some stuff around. He's like, no, I think it's gratuitous, and he rips. I like, off. I like first that he like covers his face yes. in embarrassment when the Hulk first jumps out, and he's like smashing things, and he's like, oh god. I mean, I have you ever thought about what you were doing? You know, ten years ago, and just like had a moment of shame. It usually happens seconds. to me when I'm sitting at a red light. But uh... yeah, yeah, I have. But I've never been as ripped as the Hulk, so seems understandable. Yeah, for me. So the Hulk goes to Bleecker Street to meet Strange and meets the Ancient One instead, since this is before Strange became a master of mysticism. Hulk attempts to take the Eye of Agamotto from the Ancient One, but she knocks him out and separates the Bruce Banner soul as an astral projection so they can discuss things. I just realized she says that he's in surgery uh, about 10 blocks away or whatever. That means a wall of literal alien invasion is going on. He's like, nope, everyone stay out. I'm working on it. But I can picture it perfectly. (laughs) If he's in the middle of surgery while that invasion is going on, like he's not going to, well, this guy's got to die and run away. Like, like he's going to sit there and commit to a surgery. Like I was able to... Yeah. Really picture that yeah. scene. Yep. Iron Man, Captain America, and Ant Man arrive in the Stark Tower just after Loki's defeat, and we get to see the immediate aftermath of the Battle of New York for the first time. The Shield Strike team, led by Jasper Sitwell and Brock Rumlow, arrive to take Loki's scepter, Brock Rumlow being crossbones. Um, Iron Man points out they are Hydra, but none of them know yet. Loki impersonates Captain America to make fun of him. Very funny. Also, it's very funny because it's Chris Evans playing Loki, right. playing Captain America. So it's really <laughs> funny. <laughs> also funny at the time, but on rewatching, I realize it's important because it sets up what happens later. Mm-hmm. It, it it puts that seed in, in Steve Rogers' head of, oh, Loki can pretend to be me. Right. It's also a callback to The Dark World, a movie that yes. gets called back to so much in this movie somehow. Yes. <laughs> well, we have to pretend like it didn't exist. So we a need call to put back as much of it forward. In, we have to put as much of it in this movie so you don't actually have to watch The Dark World. Right. That's what you're right, Eduardo. That's what happened. We pulled all the important stuff out of a dark world, out of the dark world and put it in other things. So now you don't have to watch Thor the Dark World. And I you're didn't and I still understood the whole movie. There you go. <laughs> Uh, so Tony Stark says the 2012 Captain America costume did nothing for Steve Rogers' ass, but Scott Lang, <laughs> my boy Scott Lang, disagrees, saying that's America's ass. <laughs> Apparently, that was a hot topic in the writers' room. Like they, it was very controversial to have this joke, um, and like it almost got cut several times. I am very glad it did not get cut. Yeah, I heard that they actually they screened it for a focus group, and the line was not in it. And one of the, I forget which producer it was. Uh, so my apologies to that, to that. I'm sorry to that man. Um, but uh, he, he's like, what happened to that, that great line about America's ass? So they put it back in and people loved it so much that they then added the follow-up to it later. <laughs> uh, 
Ant-Man gets flicked onto Tony Stark 2012 and rides with the Avengers down the elevator to lobby of Stark Tower. Hulk is told he is too large for the elevator and Angler takes the stairs. <laughs> Take the <laughs> stairs! Hate the stairs! <laughs> so, good. so many stairs! stairs. <laughs> uh, Captain America from 2023 boards the strike team's elevator, finding himself once again in a glass elevator surrounded by Rumlow's men for the first time. <laughs> Steve tells Sitwell he will be taking the scepter. Rumlow says he can't let that happen, and the tension of the Winter Soldier, uh, does anyone want to get out, fight builds. Which is, it's so that's such a great callback, because they're not, like, hitting you over the face with it, but they're putting a lot of the same people in mm-hmm. the same elevator, and they're, they're building this tension, and it's so, you, you can, like, feel it, right? Yep. And Raj, I think we all just assumed, okay, it's happening. They're going to redo the fight. And I thought right. they were going to do it again, too. Forced, but at least it's going to be fun. And then they <laughs> fake you out because Rogers diffuses the situation by whispering, Hail Hydra, to a shocked Sitwell and leaves the elevator with the scepter. On oh, the smirk Ooh. on his face and he walks out of that elevator. Oh, it is. So well, good. And in the commentary, the Russo brothers talk about they snuck into an opening day screening and they said of all the cheers they heard from the audience, that one was the most satisfying to them was the way (laughs) people cheered when Captain America walked out with the scepter. Well, and like, this is a, I I mean, you watch the commentary, so I'm not 100% sure, but this feels like a a callback, not a callback, but an homage to the comic series where Captain America becomes a Hydra agent, correct? Yeah, I think it was too. Yeah, that, because that was... uh such a controversial story and still is a secret empire. It was still pretty recent when this Yeah, it's out. only it's only a couple years old. Uh that that was just a couple years ago that that, that storyline happened and it was kind of iconic. Uh, not necessarily a good way. Some people like that story, a lot of people don't as well. Uh that but this I have not read the full thing so this is not the place to litigate that story, but I thought it was such a brilliant way to you know, kind of wink, wink, wink at that mm-hmm. at that storyline without actually having to do Captain America's evil. So, Chris. I wonder if anybody bought it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chris. Yeah. The time heist, right? So, the, the time, time heist, heist as a whole. We're going to talk about it now um, because that's what Robbie put in the notes. So, the time <laughs> heist as a whole is sort of a love letter to everything that's happened so far in the MCU. Now, please touch on that because those are your words and not mine, and I don't want to take words out of your mouth. The time heist is a love letter to the MCU. (laughs) (laughs) You took the words. I I put them right back in my... Oh, thank you. All right, moving on. Like a a a baby bird here. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, God. Sick retur- uh, regurgitation, bro. The time barf. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, uh, I and I really want you all to, to help me out on this one because, like, I have my thoughts on this. And, mm-hmm. and, and I really want to know what you guys think, too, because I think, I think it, that I Time think Heist great. is a love letter to the MCU. Oh. <laughs> Robbie, what say you? <laughs> well, I think in doing the Time Heist, they were letting all of us as well as themselves know in so many words how much they loved the MCU. <laughs> like a letter? Yeah, like a letter. Oh, okay. About that Yeah, love. it's like they wrote Sent a... to uh, the MCU as the recipients. Right, they wrote a compassion <laughs> document to the MCU. 
Oh god. <laughs> okay, I'll stop it. Okay, now. I'm sorry. No, uh, it's probably the time to tell the Cheerios joke now. Oh yeah. Uh, so there's this Cheerio. There's a trajectory. Um, no, but anyway. So. Oh man. So as I was saying, the time ice is a love letter to the MCU. <laughs> um, and uh, no, but they they do it really really well uh, because it could have been self-congratulatory okay i had a different word in mind that i didn't really feel comfortable saying but <laughs> self-congratulatory is what i'm going to say um onanistic um was the fancy way of the other word i was thinking of um but yeah it, it could have just been like a big greatest hit and it kind of is because you go to a lot of iconic moments throughout the series uh you know the battle of new york the opening of uh, of uh, guardians of the galaxy Thor the Dark World. Uh, you know, all these things that people love. <laughs> um, <laughs> Vormir, for uh, six years before we ever saw it. Um, no, but but they... It, it's... It, I'm sorry, I'm looking at my notes, and even though I have notes in front of me of the things that I want to say, it's, it's still I'm still having trouble verbalizing it which is, you know, awesome for a podcast. Uh, you know, we, we get uh, the Morag stuff, like, for example, in addition to just getting the, the great Star-Lord gag, which I will not go on too much about because I know that we'll be talking about it later. Uh, but it's fun, but it does also end up creating the main conflict that takes us into the third act and beyond. Mm-hmm. So, so there is an important story thing that, happened, that happens there. Revisiting the Battle of New York... Uh, to me, it, it plays out as I, I call it a combination of an in-universe behind-the-scenes peek at the events of that movie because you get stuff like there they all are standing over Loki that that shot from the Avengers, and then we cut to behind them and Tony saying, "All right, we can stand around posing later. We got stuff to do or uh, whatever they say," and then you see the boring stuff that you wouldn't want to see in the actual mm-hmm. Avengers movie of the cleanup, but. Now, 10 years later, we love these characters so much. Seeing that all this stuff happen is fun. And then, you know, you get the twist on the Winter Soldier elevator fight. So it's almost like, it, it's almost like a, a parody of, of these things that we've seen happen. But, but a loving parody. Right. Uh, but a parody nonetheless. It's like, well, let's take these moments and how can we have some fun with it? Uh, and of course, it does seem like it's going to be setting up something, at least the Loki TV show. Uh, when Loki gets away with it, but also Loki getting away with the Tesseract. Not only does that set up the uh, the uh, Loki show that we're going to be getting on Disney Plus, but it is also the impetus for them going further back in time to the '70s to something that we've never seen before, uh, where Tony and Steve both have, as we talked about a little bit last last week's episode. Uh, this is where Tony and Steve kind of get put into place for their respective end games as it were with steve seeing peggy and realizing all right this is this is what i need uh, i'm gonna get these pin particles and tony finally you know getting that connection with his father that he needed so so it does end up leading into something that is very important from a character perspective uh from a story perspective and then of course uh going to asgard thor it, it, it somehow manages to redeem the dark world uh, by giving Thor some really important care. Well, it almost redeems the dark world. 
it gives Thor some uh, really great character beats, him realizing that he's still worthy. Uh, and it also gives Rene Russo a chance to actually have some meaningful screen time as Frigga, which even in Dark World, she didn't really get that much of. She was yeah. in there for a little while, and then she got killed. She got fringed, basically. Apparently, this is the movie where Rene Russo had the most lines of any MCU movie. Oh, my God. She got fringed in. <laughs> 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 Have we like, talked about women in refrigerators before on the show, or do I need to define that term? Uh, I, mean, I think we a... did, like, in the very first few episodes that okay. you were on. Yeah, okay. I mean, if you want to gloss over it, just in case we have someone listening that doesn't get it. The, the basic gist of it, women in refrigerators is a term shorthand for, especially in comic books, but in a lot of uh, media, where a woman gets killed to move a man's story along. Um. There, there's a longer explanation than that, but that is the the basic just uh, of it. Yeah, yeah, you get the point of it. That's what happened. Frigga dies, and that's what pushes Loki and and Thor's stories along in um, in Dark World. Uh, so here, she actually gets to have a connection. We get to see her as a mother to Thor. We get to see Thor as a son who needs his mother. Uh, so, so I think that's a really great scene there. But yes all while giving us all of these, uh, you know, again, revisiting. I, I, and I think the secret is, and we've, we've talked about this, and this is going to be relevant when we get to the final battle as well, is that they didn't just go, hey, what would be really cool to see happen in this big movie? That's our big finale. Uh, granted, there was certainly some aspect to it, I'm sure, where like, well, that would be neat. But they didn't stop there. They said, okay, now why does it matter? Why are people going to want to see this? How do we make it matter to this movie? They could have just thrown in a bunch of references and people would cheer because people love being reminded of things that they like. It is, I mean, I think we're all guilty of that probably at one point or another, but it gets to a point where that feels hollow and it feels empty. And again, I don't want to just bag on Star Wars right now, but I feel like this is where my brain is going now is that when you hear about the writing process of episode nine, they apparently had a big board of things that they said, what do we want to see in this movie? We want to see Lando fly the Falcon. We want to see this. We want to see that. And I feel like they didn't do the work the way that the Russo brothers and Marcus and McFeely did the work to say, okay, this would be great to see. Why does it matter? Why is it like, yes, we all wanted to see, well, maybe we all, I wanted to see Captain America with Mjolnir. And we got to see it, and it was great. But the reason it was great and we wanted to see it was because it had been seeded as something to look forward to throughout the whole series, and this felt like the culmination of that. Right. Um, I know I'm jumping ahead, but this but this is just kind of... It all kind of goes together because Endgame, being the finale, it has a lot of what you could call fan service, but it feel it doesn't feel like just empty fan service to me at least, and maybe you you disagree. I feel like you guys don't disagree because we have this podcast, uh, so <laughs> maybe you're not the best people to ask. I don't know. Uh, well, what do you think? Well, I mean, I, I think, think that it's a love letter to the MCU, <laughs> <laughs> and who doesn't like a love letter? I think everything you said is right, and I'm actually, I am a glutton for fan service. Um, I know that part of if we ever actually on some podcast discuss episode nine, I think that one thing, 
a couple of us actually feel on this is that we actually enjoyed the fan service. That said, I would prefer if the fan service is, okay, yes, you did this because you know I'm going to like it, but it's good that you made it work in a meaningful way in the story. And I think you're right. This did a better job of that than anything ever, maybe. Yeah. Like, like literally maybe any other work of, of fan fiction ever. I think this did a better job of blending fan service in a way that, yeah, you got all the stuff you want, but we made it work. We made it fit with the story you're doing. And that's exactly yeah. what this scene we're on right now is, is, you know, this is, is taking us back to, Hey, remember this greatest hit? Remember this movie that you thought would be the best superhero movie ever made. And somehow we made it to top it a couple times. Like we went back to that first Avengers movie that we, you know, we did that episode and talked about how meaningful and important that show, that movie was. And they went back to that and they went back to a key moment of it and then gave you almost a sitcom-like um, side story of what happened afterwards, which is the kind of thing you're interested in seeing usually. And we were, they're able to fit it in this way and make it matter. Yeah. And it was fun. And that ridiculous, the ridiculous story beat of Hulk doesn't fit in the elevator, which is really funny. And, oh, that ends up mattering, which, by the way listening to um again listening to the commentary they were talking about in the writer's room they're going through the sequence of events and they're getting to wait how do we knock the case out of tony's hand because this was when they were kind of in their rough draft of just kind of following the story as they're creating it piece by piece and they said how do we get it out of tony's hand and they go wait hulk is in the stairs <laughs> so, <laughs> so they, they put hulk in the stairwell because it was funny and then realized wait we can make it work in the story as well and this whole sequence has a whole bunch of that. We have, um, you know, we have uh, Secretary Pierce showing up again, which is cool. And, you know, the, there's a, a story beat to that. You know, we're, we're able to blend in all this. Oh, yeah, these people who we know are Hydra, they would have shown up, but no one would have known they were Hydra. Like, that just makes all of this so interesting. But you're also right. It's just a fun, it, it, a great love letter. All these characters get really significant and important moments. So, yeah, okay. To whom is that love letter written? The MCU. <laughs> um, it's an infatuation parcel. Well, and I and I was sitting here trying to think of On other. I was sitting here trying to think of other key moments that would just fit so well that you know other moments that were hey remember this that were yeah that's what they were doing but we still enjoyed it but you I think you got to all of them but it was. Uh, um, just done so well. I mean, leaving it Natalie Portman in the time heist, and Natalie Portman didn't show yeah. up for filming. It's yeah, <laughs> and now she's coming back, which is good. It is good. Yeah, I think part of it, and I think the the Star Wars um, comparison is really interesting because it has to do a lot with trust, and it has to do with trust in the director and the producers and the people who are putting everything together. And you can tell the amount of trust the Russo brothers had with this project, and you can tell how little trust J.J. Uh, Abrams had with uh, Rise of Skywalker and sort of... And, and that's not to the fault of J.J. Abrams, I don't yes. think. I think that's to the fault of people above him making significantly more money. And part of the reason why they didn't trust him was because of how successful the MCU was. Because the victory of the MCU was not just the Russos, but it was every executive above the Russos, regardless of how good the Russos' work was. And so they took that success and were like, all right, we know what we're doing here, J.J. You need to calm down. Did you see Endgame? you know right. that we did earlier all right well we got this and right. so they kind of took a little bit more creative liberty with with rise of skywalker and i think they're starting to see that backfire and i think part of that was solo i think honestly part of it solo was a little bit of 
letting somebody take a chance and it didn't necessarily work out. Whereas Rise of Skywalker was a lot more too many hands in the pot to create a mess that no one necessarily enjoyed. And this isn't a Star Wars podcast, so we don't need to get too deep in the woods, but the comparison maybe someday it will be. <laughs> maybe someday at the rate we're going, maybe someday yeah. it will be. And peaches won't be here. Um, <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> well, because you don't like Star Wars. I think that would be a great That's reason. Not true. To it is. You hate uh, it. <laughs> you don't like Star you Wars. You hate pizza. I hate cheese. Right, it's too. I hate cheese. Yeah. Mexican food. He hates Mexican food. Hates yeah, Mexican oh. food. Mexican food is the worst. <laughs> Especially Mexican pizza. There's, there's always cheese on it. Especially <laughs> Mexican pizzas. <laughs> and Mexi- Mexican pizzas with cheese on them while he's watching Star Wars. It's his worst oh, favorite, that least favorite activity. <laughs> Every time I have a nightmare, that's exactly what's happening. <laughs> also, I'm totally naked. <laughs> Not right now, in the nightmare. And right also now. right now. In the middle also of right high school, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sitting in English class that so you didn't know you had a test in. <laughs> oh my god, it's getting worse. I think a lot of the success of this movie and of the MCU in general has sort of changed the way movie creation is right now. And we all already know the sort of behemoth that uh, Disney is as far as creating movies and creating content and media in general right now. And I think this is only sort of more solidified them. And so going back to what you were saying, I only talked about that because of the Star Wars comparison, but going back to what you were saying about the MCU love letter. Yeah, I think it's in a love letter to the MCU. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point, Eduardo. That's the best way I've heard that said. Yeah, so far. I just, yeah. you know, <laughs> it just kind of came to me. <laughs> Yeah, no, I just think it's a. Uh, I think all of Endgame is though, right? Like I think yes. Endgame in general oh, yeah. is a gigantic love letter to the MCU and to the, all the people that have sort of stuck by the MCU, much like this podcast. Everybody who stuck by this podcast and how these episodes are a love letter to you. Uh, <laughs> the MCU or Endgame in general is a is sort of this culmination, right? The the most ambitious crossover ever. That was is it this one or was that Infinity War? That was the. That's the what they kept one. calling Infinity War, the most ambitious crossover of all time. Right. I think this is technically the most ambitious crossover of all time, but hey, maybe I'm wrong. Wouldn't you think that anytime the Marvel Universe crossed over with another universe, that would be the most ambitious one? Yeah, because and then if the, Infinity War is just the Marvel Universe. Well, so the like Marvel versus Capcom of Boba Fett <laughs> reaches out of the Sarlacc pit. <laughs> and this is how we connect the Star Wars universe. To the Marvel Universe, and I can tell everyone except for Peaches gets that reference. <laughs> and I know what the Sarlacc pit Wait, is. Like, what? Have you not watched Parks and Rec? I am on season two, episode. Okay, so you'll, you'll get this reference. You've soon. got you'll a couple get. seasons to go, but it's but what, when you get to that episode, you'll let us know, and then we'll. Send I will you say, the whole thing. I will say it's starting to get funny. I pushed through season one by being on my Didn't phone we all the tell entire you not time. To watch season one. You know, I watched season one too. Listen, you three know me better than a bunch of people. And I bet some of the people on this podcast are scoffing at you saying that right now. You know, if I start a show, I have to watch every episode in it. You don't. Including the shitty season. I was the same way. I watched, I had to push through season one and I'm so glad I did because once you get past that season, it becomes suddenly an incredible show. Yeah. Like like season office is the same way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, I also season two wasn't immediately funny, 
but I have had moment like several at this point moments throughout season two that I am like audibly laughing by myself in my room. So, and I will tell you that unlike time. most shows, like it feels like until the very end, it just gets better and better. Well, right. It continues to get more meta as the show goes on, mm-hmm. right? Like they continue to get more inside jokes and sort of poke fun at themselves and the characters develop really well. But also this is a Marvel podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's get back to action. <laughs> I, I connected it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, look at this little thing uh, of chocolate milk. It's like a little baby gal. Oh, it's so cute. That's yeah, a love letter. Let's get back to action, milk. and here we are talking about chocolate milk. <laughs> I you just quietly take the drink. Well, I had to. Okay. <laughs> Please hold okay, while back to take the drink of chocolate milk. I'm sorry, milk. Chris. <laughs> uh, I'm leaving it all Right, in. love letter, MCU to the. It is. All right. DJ Roomba. Um, TJ Ruma. <laughs> so, we go back to the movie. In the Stark Tower lobby, Secretary Alexander Pierce arrives and demands to take the Tesseract from Tony Stark circa 2012. As a verbal confrontation ensues, Ant-Man climbs into Stark's arc reactor and causes a short out. Uh... Which I think he says it's going to get him into what is it? Heart failure, congenitive heart failure, mild, mild arrest. cardiac arrest, Which, mild cardiac arrest. And so Something I like always that. wondered why does it put him in cardiac arrest when the reason the arc reactor is there is it's it's keeping shrapnel from working its way into his heart. Why would it immediately cause cardiac arrest? Because he he, he shorted it when he took out the battery, it shorted it and it caused the jolt, which puts him into cardiac arrest. Got it. Yeah, okay, my so guess the is the, yeah. going into his heart. It's not. It's not the, right. yeah. so, the shrapnel suddenly speeds up. <laughs> I learned this at work. It's something yeah. I didn't know. And I don't know if anybody else knows this, so I'll say it on the podcast. When somebody is hooked up to paddles or an AED, that doesn't bring them back to life. Technically, it kills them. It shocks them so that their heart stops, and then their heart should be able at that point to pick up on Got its own it. and start once again. So when you hook someone up to an AED <laughs> or a paddles, it shocks them, their heart stops, and then hopefully... I am. They keep kicking. So that's so <laughs> glad that I never needed to use one of those. Now that you've explained that to me, yeah. So that solves the second part because I always wondered how Thor's hammer fixed the arc reactor. It didn't. It just gave him another shock to. It gave him another shock, which then he goes and fixes right. the arc reactor later. It's okay, right now. Robbie, well, tell sense. the story about how that how that came to be. Okay. It's fun trivia. Go. No, I said Robbie. You tell. Oh, me. I tell. Wait, wait. What? What? Hold on. What trivia? About the ESPN guy. Oh, so I actually don't know about that. And I didn't even realize he was in the movie until oh. I was watching it and saw him in the movie the, on this rewatch. So for you guys right. who don't know, this scene, the bald guy standing next to Secretary Pierce is Matthew Barry, who is a um, – I don't really care about fantasy football analysis, but he's actually a smart and entertaining dude. Uh, but he's ESPN's like fantasy football analysis dude. And he has a cameo in the scene standing next to Secretary Pierce. And I literally did not realize he was in the movie until I just watched it last week. And I go, wait a second, is that Matthew Barry? And I looked it up and it is not Matthew Perry, Matthew Barry. And apparently there's fun trivia about this that I didn't know. Yeah, well, he uh, apparently he and Joe Russo go way back. They've been fantasy football friends for a long time. Whoa. So (laughs) Joe Russo calls him up and says, do you want to be in the movie? (laughs) Um, Interesting. And... While they're apparently while they're on set, uh, he's the one who he ad libbed, Don't you have a magic hammer? 
And that's how they decided to make that how Tony wakes up. That's so cool. <laughs> I didn't even know that. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I could have sworn that you told me no, that. No, I don't so think I, guess I knew someone that. Else that. Oh told my me gosh, that story. that's so cool. Uh, yeah. That so that's fun. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> that was worth derailing over. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So now we know. Oh, we've Tony's... derailed over less. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was actually good though. I didn't, this, none of this ever made sense to me and I didn't question it much, but I didn't really understand what was going on with Tony Stark and now it all makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Well, my job is good for something. <laughs> Woo! More like the big man with a job, job right? Um, <laughs> in the confusion, the Tesseract case falls to the ground, and Scott knocks it over to Tony, circa 2023, disguised as a SWAT officer. <clears throat> as Tony, circa 2023, starts to leave with the Tesseract, Hulk, angry over having to walk so many stairs. So many stairs! Bursts through the door, knocks down Tony, and the Tesseract case flies open with the cube landing in front of Loki. Thor uses a zap of lightning to restart Stark's arc reactor, but Loki picks up the Tesseract and vanishes. So we now realize that I wrote that wrong. That's not what he was doing. (laughs) (laughs) So, this is... I find this part so interesting because this is all... A lot of this is all done to set up Loki's new live-action series, which we knew was going to be a thing by this point, correct? Yes. It so by been, this point, it had already been announced. I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if it was officially announced or if it was just one of those things where it was heavily reported by sources that usually know these things. Right. And so I find it so interesting that they would set something like this up in the middle of this. Like, the stuff with Falcon and Winter Soldier seems really organic to the end of the movie. Not to say that this doesn't necessarily seem organic, but this definitely seems like something that they were like, all right, we need to make sure Loki disappears with the Tesseract because we need Loki to be alive. And we definitely strangled him to death in the last movie. (laughs) Violently, in front of everyone. And it was really hard to watch. (laughs) He's been dead before. Um, and so I just think it's so interesting that this, like, this is one of the biggest movies of the last decade, maybe the last 20 years. I mean, I think you can inarguably say it's one of the biggest movies ever. Like we could. Right. Yeah. I don't, I I, I don't know where it is on that list, but I think you can say ever. It's one of the biggest movies of all time. Sure. And so I think. It's so interesting for something like this to be plugged in there to set up a live action TV series for Disney's new subscription service coming out later this fall. The the series, not the subscription service, because that's already out. But I find that so interesting that that's just sort of kind of plugged in there. And if you're not sort of as in tune with literally everything happening with the MCU like we are, you probably wouldn't even notice, right? But I guarantee you that will be immediately talked about as soon as that Loki series comes out. Mm -hmm. I agree with you, but I also think that they didn't have to put that scene in and it still would have worked out fine for the show because Vision is... Like, the last time we saw Vision, he was not anything anymore. Sure, but he's a robot. They might have undone... Every, they might have undone everything by going through the time heists and you know progressing through the movie, but like there's still WandaVision, and we don't know why the hell that works or how it's going to work either. Yeah, I will, and I think you're right, Eduardo. I just I will also say it was done in a way that didn't take me out of the movie, which this sort of thing normally would. Yeah. And in this case, I wasn't watching it and thinking, 
Ah, they set up the Loki movie. I just thought, haha, Loki got the Tesseract. Everything's screwed up now. Um, although in a, watching it now, it kind of takes me out of the movie because it, does it work with the way they establish time travel working in this movie? If Steve Rogers goes back and he puts the Tesseract back at the right spot, doesn't it clip that branch and now Loki doesn't get away and that alternate reality doesn't exist anymore? Or at least that See, alternate reality is now the same as this reality? Right, and that's the weird part, is because if Steve Rogers went back and put the Tesseract back, how many timelines are there, right? Like your new future becomes right. your past type of thing. Is there a timeline now that is screwed where T Steve Rogers has never come back right. and given back all of their Infinity Stones that just has no Infinity Stones? And that doesn't that well, does not make it sound like what the Ancient One was talking about. It sounded to me like she was saying, no, him going back and returning this means this there's not a reality where this happened. This reality is now safe from Loki. And we'll see when the show starts because, I mean, we're all just assuming that this is what they did to set up Loki. Maybe they have another idea. But also, the Tesseract he returns is being returned previous to this event back in the... Was it the 50s, 60s, 70s? How back to they uh, go? It was 1970. Oh, that's the, the 70s. So he returns it to the 70s, <sighs> so Loki still gets away with the Tesseract in this timeline. So perhaps what happened, and we'll, I wanna, we'll talk about the time travel later because I have lots of thoughts I want to ask you guys on, yeah. but for this thought, on the, perhaps what happened is they made two branches because of the Tesseract, but one got fucked up, and that, te that branch just gets to exist screwed, but then they clipped the other branch by going back to the 70s. I always assumed that when he went back to fix everything that he would also just take a little detour to be like, nope, Loki's not getting that. And also, Thor, here's your hammer back. And then he goes to Vormir to talk to Red Skull. Yeah, I still want to see that. <laughs> Maybe he shows up in the New York timeline on his detour to convince them that Hulk should be allowed in the elevator. <laughs> no, guys, I'll take And then stance. no door gets flung at all. <laughs> Yeah, I just think it's a fun thing. Like, I don't. Yeah. I, I think it takes me more out of the movie now because I can think at yeah. the time I didn't really care. I was yeah. like, "Oh, this is cool," um, but now that I'm sort of watching it, <laughs> I still think for the purposes of the movie, though, it's more for you know creating that oh no that that moment of failure that you have to have in any story, uh, which then is resolved with the trip to the seventies. What is happening right now? <laughs> My dog tried to climb on the inflatable bed behind me, and he totally ate shit. <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 like, climbed up and then fell right back down. And now he is very embarrassed sitting next to me. Poor Teddy. Poor guy. His tail's all the way down and everything. Like, he's real He's real embarrassed. Aww. Poor Teddy. But, yeah, I just thought it was a fun no, little thing. We don't have to. We don't have to harp on it too much. Um, so 2023 Captain America runs into his 2012 self and says a bad word. 2012 Cap assumes this is the recently escaped Loki and attacks. The two fight to a standstill. Uh, 2012 says, I can do this all day. And 2023 says, I know, I know. Uh, 2023 Cap eventually distracts the past Cap by telling him Bucky is alive and then knocks him out and takes a scepter. Uh, he looks at his knocked out self and agrees with Squat. About America's ass. That is America's ass. <laughs> that moment kind of felt like, uh, what name did you just say? <laughs> did it not feel like that to you guys? It, it like felt a little bit. About he it, uses but... he uses the name of someone he knows. They both know. I mean, <laughs> I know that's not how it happened in in Batman versus Superman, but it kind of felt like a jab at 
at BVS. Maybe. Like he takes advantage of 2012 Rogers knowledge. And in that time, decks him in the face. <laughs> you might be right, but it's just so many leagues less ridiculous than I'm not going to kill you because your mom has the same name as my mom. And you just said her name. You just said your mom's first name in front of me. <laughs> Martha. <laughs> now, did you know that the uh, the stunt doubles in that scene, uh, they are brothers, first of all. And uh, Sam Hargrave is a stunt coordinator um for endgame uh but he was chris evans previous stunt double in other movies his brother is his current stunt double so for that scene they both were doubling the two caps so it's the two brothers uh, one culminating his career as a stuntman because now he's more of a coordinator uh so so that kind of has some deep meaning to them that they said their dad was on the set while they were filming that. So it's really a, interesting. Really cool. That's a nice story. Chris really coming with the trivia today. I like it. Like so that. is it America's ass or is it stunt doubles ass? Uh, that's a good point. Uh, it's stunt double America's ass. Whoa. United stunt doubles of America. <laughs> United <laughs> cheeks of america the ancient one explains to bruce she can't hand over the time stone without hurting her own reality she tells banner that if the time stone is taken it creates a new branch of reality an alternate universe where the time stone isn't in the hands of the order to protect the universe from darkness she says that what we experience is the flow of time is created from the infinity stones Okay. Banner insists he could return the stone to the exact moment in time after using it, clipping the new branch reality, but the Ancient One says it's too big a danger to trust him. Bruce asks why Strange would give the stone away if that were the case. The Ancient One realizes if Strange, meant to be the best of us, gave the stone away, he must have had a reason. And a reminder that the Ancient One mentioned in Doctor Strange that she was unable to see her past her own death, which happened before Strange gave the stone away. The Ancient One reunites Banner's soul and Hulk's body, hands him the Time Stone, and makes him swear he'll return it. And Bruce swears to do so. Peaches, you have a puzzled look. I'm curious. You're reminding me that the Ancient One said that the concept of time is created from the Infinity Stones. So how do we know that five years passed after the Infinity Stones were destroyed by Thanos? If there because is no didn't... longer a concept so, of time. I don't know for certain, but how I inter because I did I actually thought about that same thing, and my interpretation was just you gotta make some leaves with faith when there's time travel. But with that one I just felt it was the time the time stones control time. When they were destroyed, the flow of time just it's like a car where you put the brick on the gas pedal it just is gonna keep going the way it was and there's no other way to alter or control it now okay i don't know that i'm because right. the way that that the the that reminder of that line made me think like wait a second should the universe even exist at this point is everybody in purgatory yeah. is this lost yeah i think that's one <laughs> of the questions that with marvel up. characters definitely a valid question Okay. Or are they are oh, they not even really existing anymore? This is just um, three quick things I really oh. like about the scene. By the way, it's great having Tilda Swinton again. I love her ancient one. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Mark... And you love her as the ancient one. <laughs> God. <laughs> 
Mark Ruffalo oh, does boy. some great acting in this scene because he is playing <laughs> his two characters differently. Like you can see that when he is out of Hulk's body, like that nervousness, that lack of confidence from Bruce Banner shows up again. Um, whereas he's very confident when he's Professor Hulk. Um, and so Ruffalo does a great scene. And then the two of them together are a great scene because we took these two brilliant people from the MCU that had previously never connected or interacted. We take this genius on the level of, you know, um, spectral mysticism and this genius in terms of a man of science. And we put them together on this roof and have a meeting in the minds that I think is actually a very, very interesting interaction. Um, and it is quietly one of my favorite scenes in this movie. I I remember being just so surprised when Tilda Swinton showed up because I didn't know she was going to be in the movie. And it was just so much fun. I, I've talked before about how much I love weird character 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 my god uh character pairings (laughs) weird love letters to the mcu uh weird pairings of characters and and i never thought i would see hulk and the ancient one share a scene Mm -hmm. together you know it's great you know i'm gonna take it a step further i also love weird character pairings let's get weirder let me get a movie with umbaco and maria hill let me get that a movie, <laughs> right? That, that would be great. Right? Doesn't that sound awesome? Let me get I mean, one. Baku with... anyone sounds great. First that's, of all. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. Well, and that's just the thing is that they all these characters are so well-defined in their character traits that yeah. they work really well paired with anyone because it's very clear to see how two characters with clear motivations and traits would react and, and interact with one another. I want to see M'Baku and the kid from Iron Man 3. There you go. I want to see. I want to see Wasp go on a mission with the Dora Milaje. I do too. Give the Dora Milaje a bunch of Wasp suits. Oh my God! Can you imagine? <laughs> huh? Can oh, we man, get? If they could uh, shrink. No, <laughs> what's his name? The um, the guy that plays the blacksmith in um, in Infinity War, Peter Dinklage, Peter Dinklage yeah. <laughs> and literally anyone. Just more Peter yes. Dinklage, please. Mm-hmm. See, what I want from all of this, I want this somehow to E-tree. fit into when they make the uh, Latveria versus um, uh, Wakanda. Wakanda war movie. Yeah. Wasp shows up to help the side of Wakanda against Latveria. So now we also get Doctor Doom. Yeah. I mentioned on the battlefield that one time. I figured I'd get my help out. <laughs> we were protecting Captain Marvel. It didn't look like she needed it, but we were there. But that's so. how comic books work. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. That's great. I, I'm not just because I'm making fun of it doesn't mean I don't like it. I make fun of things I like all the time. Twenty twenty three, Stark and Lang argue in front of Rogers over whether or not the mission is a failure after the loss of the Tesseract. Tony wants to find another way out, but Scott insists that isn't possible without more Pym particles. Stark realizes that there is a time and place where they can find both Pym Particles and the Tesseract. He asks Rogers if he trusts him, and Rogers says he does. Scott is sent back to 2023 with the Tesseract, while Steve and Tony use their remaining Pym Particles to shrink down for another... All right, nice one, Robbie. Quantum Leap together. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Copyright, trademark, copy, mar- trade right. You're gonna piss Bailey off. She she hears the words trade uh, trademark or copyright said within a thirty mile radius. She comes running. Uh, so Robbie, 
Time travel. Wibbly wobbly timey wimey. Get at me with the time travel talk. Yeah, and this is, I want to hear all of your thoughts on this as well. Um, so I want more discussion on this one. But I, I generally hate when time travel is introduced into stories because I think it's just too hard to make it airtight. It's too hard to clip the branches, as the Ancient One says, and make it all make sense and suss out all the, um, the, 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 um, what's the word I'm looking for? The, uh, paradoxes. Now I will say, and I'll say two things. One, I will say, I don't like it in this movie either. I love Endgame, but I definitely kind of groaned when I realized, oh, they're doing time travel. That said, I will also say, I think they handled time travel about as well as a movie can handle time travel. And, you know, so I like that. I, I mean, they handled it all right. They didn't really ruin the franchise for me. They didn't even ruin the movie for me, which I think is still fantastic. Um, and I like that they kind of lampshade it with the uh, so Back to the Future's bullshit talk. Um, I like that they find interesting ways to to do this time traveling. Um, I, And one thing I respect as well is they've talked a lot about in the writer's room, they were bringing in um, quantum physicists to sit there and like help them. And I read that an interview really with one. really tiny I... physicists, right? Yes, correct. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I actually, well, so quantum physicists are just like an Ant-Man where you say quantum in front of everything. It makes it more special. So they're really just physicists, but they say quantum. So that they're more special physicists because of the word quantum. Um Mm-hmm. But I read an interview, and I, I put it in the show notes, I don't know if anyone looked at it, but I read an interview with one of the quantum physicists who helped with this movie. And he says, you know, time travel is probably just not possible because of all of these paradoxes. He says, however, if you got to have time travel in your story, they address the right ways to make it make sense. The, the idea of creating branching parallels, being able to undo those branching parallels, but emphasizing that what you are experiencing is not going back into the past what you're experiencing is you are reliving stuff from the past as your current future you're constantly progressing forward in the future it's just you have gone to a past location in that future which is hard to wrap your brain around but it 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 does make more sense than the back to the future go back in time and you start fading out of this polaroid picture thing and so i do think they handled it as well as you can i still am not in love with introducing time travel to a universe but I think they handle it pretty well. I think most of the um, potential questions are solved, except I still just don't get how, and I don't know, no, this is, I'm not even th- sure this trail is worth going down. I don't get what goes on with Steve Rogers at the end of this movie. But everything else, I think, makes I a lot of a sense. <laughs> everything else That's I think a makes point. a lot of sense. Yes, it is. And I think we ought yeah. to save it for episode three because it's a bigger point. Yeah. But, um, the but the clipping of the branches i think the connecting time stones i think that all makes sense um but i just i want to hear if you guys feel the same way because i just as much as i love this film i don't love that it's about time travel but at least they i feel like handled the time travel pretty well i have two things the first thing is that the marvel comics in general have dealt with time travel before right so yes, I agree. It's not so, that weird to bring it into a movie in the MCU. I yeah, think I'll it makes sense, especially if you want to ever set up characters that use time travel as like 
a main component of their story, like Kang the Conqueror or something. Right. I don't know if Kang will ever make it to the MCU. That seems like a bit far-fetched, but also years ago, Doctor Strange seemed really far-fetched. So who knows? Maybe we'll get Kang the Conqueror one day. Right. For me, personally, the second thing that I have to say in reply to that is that I typically... I do like to post post movie. I do like to like overanalyze a movie like that's I'm just an overly analytical person. That's my job. That's like what I like doing. That being said, for time travel in movies, unless the movie was really bad, um, it doesn't it doesn't really bother me if if there are plot holes. If I had a good time watching the movie. I don't need to think about all the ways that the movie fucked up time travel. Like I really enjoy the first back to the future a lot. It's a great movie. I don't think about all the crap they did wrong because I just like the movie. Um, I don't think they did a lot wrong in this one personally, but I don't ever think about this movie and go, God damn it. Time travel. Um, because it doesn't, it doesn't bother me in any way. And yeah, there are some questions here and there and I'll probably always have them, but they're not even close to big enough issues to drag this movie down for me. So that's how I feel about it. But I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I think I said last week that when I heard rumors and speculation that time travel was going to play a part in the movie, I was like, oh, man, I hope they don't do that. And then they did, and it didn't bother me. And I think what I was afraid of was... I don't like it when time travel is used as a crutch, as an undo button. Mm-hmm. And they didn't use it as an undo button. It right. was a, we're moving forward, we're using time travel to attain our goals, but then we're coming back to the present and we're fixing things there. It's not, we're going to go back and kill baby Thanos. Or, yes, I think, like, I think that's why on. I feel like it's pretty acceptable in this, is they used time travel to retrieve a MacGuffin. They didn't use time travel to change yeah, the time travel quo. itself was yes, not right. the yeah. Right. It was it was just it was more about the travel than the time. Right. It was like, well, we got to go get this thing, and the only way to do it is right. is this way. Uh, and and time travel in stories in general, I like it when it's done well. Um, you know, I was a big Doctor Who fan. Um, you know, for several series there, um, Back to the Future is great. Um, Futurama has time travel in it and. They, they do a, they obviously they do more of a parody of it in a lot of ways but I think the the key to a good time travel story is that you have to establish what the rules for your time travel are and then stick to it mm-hmm. the as even if it doesn't make sense when you think too hard about it if you say these are our time travel rules and you follow those rules then you're okay and Going back to like, talking about the Infinity Stones and, oh, we have to bring the stones back because it'll cause all these alternate universes and that would be bad. I, that's, that's the, there's all, there always has to be some kind of limitation on your time travel, and that was the limitation that they put on it here. And, and I think that works. It's like how in Doctor Who there are fixed points in time that are so important that you can't go in and change it even if you tried. And if you do, then like the universe ends, you know, and that and that's just kind of what it is. I mean, that's that's how you can say, well, if the Doctor's so great, how come he didn't go kill Hitler? Uh, you know, and it's the same thing with this. It's like, well, if the Avengers are so great, how come they didn't go kill Thanos, right? And Hitler. Well, and <laughs> and I do like that Frigga, who is a 
powerful being who sees on multiple planes of existence at once, she she handles the no 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 literally don't tell me what's coming. Like she understands yeah. the the weight of all of this. You know yeah. what though? You can argue, even though they literally use the phrase time travel in this movie several times, mm-hmm. you could argue that they're not really time traveling Absolutely. in this movie because because of the boundaries that they set up. You, I, I think it's a stronger argument to say that they're reality hopping. Yes. That they're going into a reality that is similar to the one that they came from, plucking the stones from it so that they can use stone B or stone two or whatever to fix what happened in their reality and then take those stones back. It like, it doesn't feel like time travel for that. I agree with that. And that might be another reason it doesn't bother me because it, it feels like mixed realities, not mixed. I agree with that. And I'll even say, I'll even say that as I was writing this, the scripts I'm, or I was intentionally pointing out, um, not, you know, that they go back in time and forward in time, but they are shrinking to the quantum realm coming out in a different location from the quantum realm. Like they're not, they're not as we would traditionally say you're right traveling through time they're changing size going to a weird spot that exists in reality coming out of that spot experiencing something different it's so you're right it's not traditional time travel and i think that's good and when the loki series comes out we can sort of get confirmation on this right mm-hmm. because if these timelines are like Peaches says in an alternate reality or an alternate dimension, then this Tesseract thing will make sense, right? Because if it isn't an alternate reality, then Loki running around would have changed a lot more, right? right? Well, so, there are reports that part of Loki's show, um, you uh, and like the one image we've gotten of the show so far, uh, he's talking to someone who has tva on their shirt tva being the time variance authority which is uh, (laughs) an organization from the future in the comics uh, that monitors realities throughout the multiverse to keep temporal interference to a minimum (laughs) so loki getting away would be something that the tva would notice okay well and that makes sense yeah yeah so then yeah i think the multiple dimension thing is the the correct uh correct well, the problem the problem is they they literally say the phrase right. time travel like 32 times right. in the movie but it's but easy i just think it, it it makes more sense as a whole to just say that they're reality right. hopping yeah you know yeah i agree and i think a lot of the questions just end up being the finale of the movie but we'll get there right so new jersey 1970 a pair of hippies drive by an army base saying, make love, not war. The driver is Stan Lee in his last film cameo and a perfect <sighs> recreation of what he looked like in the 70s. The bumper sticker reads, enough said, Lee's favorite sentence for ending writer and editor notes on comic pages. 2023, Tony Stark and Steve Rogers impersonate a scientist and an army member to investigate Camp Lehigh. Lehigh? Lehigh? Lehigh. Lehigh. Uh, (laughs) the base where captain america was trained and where steve found an underground shield base in winter soldier stark enters an underground research base and finds a tesseract but as he begins to leave he runs into howard stark tony shaken introduces himself as howard potts and the two walk out together with howard explaining he is taking back gifts for his expecting wife 
Steve distracts Hank Pym, still with S.H.I.E.L.D. at this time, and breaks into his lab to steal a handful of Pym particles. There is a vintage Ant-Man helmet on Pym's desk. It's a cool Easter egg. <laughs> it is a very cool that. Easter egg. love that. Stark's son and Stark, <laughs> father, bond over parenthood. <laughs> with Howard asking Tony for advice, Tony begins to realize his father actually cared about being a dad and wasn't just like a total dick all the time. Steve... <laughs> Attempting to dodge security, tipped to his suspicious presence, ducks into an office to hide. The office turns out to be Peggy Carter, seeing his picture still on his desk, still on her desk, and Peggy herself through the window. Like Thor before, Tony realizes uh, Tony finally gets a closing conversation with his long lost parent. Although it wasn't Thor before in the way Tony tells the script, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah, it, at the time, right? Sure. Yeah. Tony tells Howard he realized his father was tough but had a lot of great parenting in him and did his best remembering his advice. No amount of money ever bought a second of time. Howard says, that kid's not here yet, and there's nothing I wouldn't do for him. Tony gives Howard an awkward goodbye hug. Rogers arrives, the two Starks bid farewell, and Stoney and Teave (laughs) return to 2023 with the Tesseract and a handful of Pym particles. Thank you so much for all you've done for this country. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so quick because we didn't No, Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say Jarvis. Oh yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Jarvis. Yeah. James Darcy appears as Edwin Jarvis, Howard Stark's Butler reprising his role from uh, agent Carter, the ABC television series, thereby proving that yes, the TV shows do matter. Sometimes if the Russo's, directed the pilot uh, <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> um, but we couldn't get daredevil and jessica jones in this what you wanted Not more yet. <laughs> and do you think that wong saying that was uh their way of being like yeah sorry we didn't get the netflix people maybe but i wish <laughs> we could yeah um, but but yeah i i got very excited when i realized who was standing there uh because he's great on that show if, if you haven't it's on disney plus uh, Agent Carter is a really fun show and ends on a cliffhanger, which just made me so mad. And I think they might be resolving it on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. this year because, hey, they're doing time travel. Uh. <laughs> um, I know no one had any discussion notes about this segment, section of the time heist, but I did want to pause real quick in case anyone has anything to say about it because it's not, there's not that much drama here. Like there's not, there's a little tension when you're in there, but you know, like, you know, the two super guys are going to do that thing. Like Tony Stark just walks in, cuts open a thing and takes the test rack. Like there's not a problem here. The tension is he runs into his father. Um, you know, Steve's tension is running away from security that if it came down to it, he could take in a fight easily. So this scene is entirely just about the interactions between the characters. You know, Steve's interaction is hiding in an office, but it gives him his moment, I think, of remembering what it is that he wants and that saving the world isn't going to get him what he wants. And maybe now, cause he doesn't just take the pin particles that he and Tony need to go back. He takes a handful um, to, you know, help give him the ability to get what he wants. Now that he realizes this is possible and he's seen Peggy again and he's seen his picture on her desk, reminding him that, you know, confirming to him that she, even in the seventies was still thinking about him. Um, and then Tony of course gets his closure with his father, which is important. So like, it's very interesting that there's not that much to this sequence. And yet I feel like this is one of the most important sequences in the MCU. 
Uh, I feel like I said most of my important things about this sequence last week. Yeah, that's uh, true. Uh, so I don't want to retread all of that. Um, Same. Yeah, I think it is. That makes sense. Just it's really important character stuff for Tony and Steve, who arguably the two main Avengers. Yes. Uh, so so that ends up being very important. Um, uh, it also again has a lot of fun little references and callbacks, like the fact that he's looking. Uh, Howard is looking for Artem Zola when he comes downstairs. Um, we get our second Community cameo with uh, Yvette Nicole Brown. And honestly, her line of dialogue in this scene, uh, or, or the one bit, it actually sounds like a joke from Community. Mm-hmm. When she goes, Two guy, uh, a guy with a hippie beard, Bee Gees or Mongo Jerry? Oh, definitely Mongo Jerry. <laughs> like, that sounds like a Community joke to me. <laughs> so, um, uh, plus we get de-aged Stan Lee and de-aged uh, Michael Douglas again. Yeah, man, and, uh, that Michael Douglas de-aged. de-aged. Uh, yeah, still, just every time. Very, very impressed by that. Um, I, guess, I guess they probably DH John Slattery. I'm not sure. Um, as Howard Stark, but but yeah, no, it's 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 an important uh, scene uh, for all the reasons I mentioned in last week's episode. So if you forgot, go listen to that one again. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> Please flip the tape to side A again. <laughs> Turn the page. Bring. <laughs> <laughs> what he said. Asgard, 2013. Rocket and Thor arrive just before the Dark Elf invasion from Thor the Dark World. Rocket has a device able to pull the Reality Stone out of Jane Foster and start starts to sneak in to retrieve it, but Thor has a breakdown. Thor is having trouble coming to grips with returning to a moment just before a lot of people he knew, including his mother, were killed. Rocket smacks Thor, reminding him everyone has experienced loss, including losing his entire own family. He tells Thor they are the only hope to get people who were kind of gone back, and he needs the God of Thunder to distract Jane so he can pull out the stone. Peaches. Yo. Let's talk some Thor, man. So when this movie came Thor out, man. people were in two camps, it felt like, about the way Thor was portrayed in this movie. There was a camp that I think everybody in this podcast is a part of, so we'll spoil that now, that like this Thor... I thought he was a fun character and sort of didn't think too much past it off of the surface level. And then there is another group who were very upset with the way Thor was portrayed for a number of reasons. And you don't necessarily agree with that reaction, correct? Yeah, and I I have a lot of thoughts on this and I need to... And I'm not at all meaning to upset anyone with this. So let me just preface it by saying that I'm going to try to tread lightly. But what I'm saying is from a place of understanding. Um, When I the main complaint that I saw about this movie from people that I know personally um, that have dealt with depression, anxiety, other mental uh, mental health challenges was that they felt like. Um, the way that Thor was treated in this movie was a mockery of mental health. And I, I just didn't agree with that. Um, And I also did see a few people and you always see people like this, not just about the MCU, but just in general who, you know, just don't believe that mental health is a thing that they should be keeping track of. And it's quote unquote, not real and whatever, blah, blah, blah. If you're one of those people that doesn't believe that mental health issues are a real thing, 
I'm honestly very happy for you. I'm not happy that you feel that way, but I'm happy that maybe you haven't had a challenge in your life with mental health before. And that I assume is the only reason that you think that that doesn't exist. But personally, I can very easily relate to, to Thor in this movie. My whole family and my half of my kingdom isn't dead, but I've been to the place that Thor lands in this movie when we meet him. I've been to the sitting around, doing nothing, eating all the time, playing video games, doesn't want to interact with anybody level of depression. And I'm not saying this to form a pity party. I'm saying that that display of depression, that display of a mental health issue is very real. It's not a mockery of mental health. Um, and, and I think maybe people left that the theater and they were, you know, calling him fat Thor and maybe the name that the community decided to initially give Thor as fat Thor is a reason that people were kind of struck by it. Or maybe people have dealt with their version of depression and anxiety in ways that they didn't deal with it the same way that Thor did. And maybe they thought that they weren't represented well enough. But I think beyond this, I think the main issue that people had um, was with the way that Rocket specifically treated Thor throughout the movie when they interacted. Um, I saw some people that were upset because Rocket wasn't being sensitive to Thor. And I just think that that's really weird. Um, they talk about how, um, well, if they were going to have Rocket just be mean to him, why did they send Rocket to to recruit Thor in the beginning of the movie? Well, if you think about the people, I'm sorry, I'm going to talk about this for a while. You guys just feel free to tell me to shut up at some point. No, please. In the beginning of the movie, when they were sending everybody to various places to recruit the last few people they needed for, for the time heist, they sent Ant-Man, Captain America, and Natasha. I don't know why I used two of their superhero names and one of their not. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Sent those three to get Tony, and they sent Bruce and Rocket to get Thor. I don't think... If you guys think that another pairing makes sense to you, please feel free to lay it on me. But personally, I think that is the best route they could have gone to recruit those individual people. Here's why. And they didn't know how bad Thor was. Like, they didn't. They had no clue. They just knew they needed to go mm -hmm. get him. So mm -hmm. they send Steve to get Tony because, you know, they've got this quarrel, but they're still like two central characters that have intertwined a lot. It doesn't make sense to send Natasha to go get Thor because of all the characters in the MCU, those two weirdly have interacted like the least. They've yeah, hardly yeah. ever had any lines with each other. Um, and it doesn't make sense to send Scott to go get Thor because Scott has literally never met Thor. So those three make sense. That leaves the other two, Bruce, who heavily interacted with Thor in Ragnarok, and Rocket, who also heavily interacted in Infinity War. So we've decided that it makes sense, right? That those two parties went to see those people found Thor. They found him in the state he was in and Bruce probably very aware of mental health challenges because he has gone through this state of always being angry and coming to terms with containing the angry gamma Hulk side of him with his actual self. 
is going to deal with that in a way that Bruce would deal with it, not a way that Hulk would deal with it, right? He's very gentle with Thor. He's He tries to persuade him to come, but he's not like overbearing. He says that he's important and that he's needed. Rocket, on the other hand, is a little more forward and a little more blunt. And I don't think that's them writing Rocket <clears throat> to be mean. Rocket is that way in general. And I think Rocket Raccoon is the type of person that is going to implement tough love in his relationships. He's not going to try to compliment you and feel better. He's trying to kick you in the ass to get you into gear. And some people are like that. And so I think all of these things come together um, in a way that is very real. It's a person that is dealing with not feeling worthy and, and has suffering from a lot of loss dealing with depression in his own way, intermingling with a character who deals with um, people in a very tough love type of way. And I don't think any of that's bad. I think that it makes sense for those characters. And I don't think that it is at all an insult to mental health issues at all. I I don't know how else to say it other than at all a bunch of times, (laughs) but there we go. I think I'm done on the soapbox. I think it's difficult water to tread, so I appreciate you kind of coming out and, and speaking on it. I think what what I think needs to be understood about basically all of this is it's not linear, correct? Right? Like it's mm-hmm. not this is this and this is how you deal with this. It is a spectrum. This is how maybe somebody deals with this and this is how somebody would react, right? It's not, it's not so cut and dry as to say this is mental health and this is the only way you can deal with mental health or this is the only way you can react to it and this is the only way it should be portrayed because it's mm-hmm. going to be different for everyone. So I don't think it's fair to sort of criticize this movie and say, one, they're not portraying it correctly and two, the way Rocket is interacting with him is not being portrayed correctly because I don't think there's necessarily a correct way to portray it. And I don't think... Mm-hmm. Um, I personally didn't find this movie offensive as far as um, Thor being a larger person. I am a horizontal person and I didn't find <laughs> anything that happened... <laughs> I didn't find anything that's happened with Thor to be, uh, you know to be an, a, an offensive thing. And as far as mental health is concerned, I think Peaches is correct. I think the lots of people have been in these situations and I think the way they deal with them is different and the way that people react to dealing with them is different. I think what's important in this scene as well is to talk about Rocket even says it when he's talking to him, but Rocket has also just gone through grief, right? Rocket's not the, some sort of level-headed therapist there for Thor. He is another uh, character here who's going through grief right at the same time and is taking it in a different reaction. He is going through his own issues in a different way. So I think it's important to take all of it into perspective rather than trying to dissect a very, very small interaction between two characters. Yeah. Yeah. Two things I want to add real quick that I have in my notes is that just back on rocket is even if he was in at his, at his most mental fortitude he's ever been like, he didn't care at all that half of his family got blipped away like five years ago. It, wouldn't it still be weird if Rocket Raccoon was like, oh, Thor, I'm so sorry, yeah. man. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. like, do you want to do you want to grab a beer? Like, <laughs> wouldn't it be yeah. super weird if Rocket, Rocket was the guy Rocket? who in the first Guardians movie goes, oh, boo hoo, my wife and kids are dead. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, it, it wouldn't make sense if 
if any of the two of us were in a situation where one of us was not feeling great and the other person totally did like a 180 and started acting differently than their normal self to try to cheer up their friend. Yeah. Like, like I'm going to try to be as me as possible. Mm -hmm. If you guys are having any sort of uh, depressive episode, whatever it might be, because I want you to know that your, your issue that you're having right now doesn't change my perspective of you as a person. I still care about you as a person the same way I did before you were having this challenge. And I'm going to portray myself the way I would to you so that you know that, that I'm not like scared of it or offended by it or whatever that is. And I think that's important. Can confirm. I think Rocket acting this way it plays that point and it's important. Well, Also, now you know something nice <laughs> about me. The other... <laughs> The other thing that I, I just like about this is the scene with Frigga where we started with this whole thing shows that somebody can go through this stuff and just things can get completely pile driven into them and they can still come out ahead. Like Thor at the end of this interaction realizes that, yeah, he's gone through hell for a long time and a lot of things have weighed on his shoulders. And at the end of the day, he's still worthy. And that is a big deal to him. And I think a lot of people could learn from that, no matter if, you're, if your depression is a result of, you know, what I, I don't want to make a joke of it, but all the things that happened to Thor, or if it's something completely different. At the end of the day, like, you're still worthy of the things that you're worthy of, and, and, and you're still a person that um, deserves compassion and and care and, and all of the things that come with it. So I think that's a good lesson and it's, there's just no insults here. Yeah. I think you handled that perfectly tactfully. Um, and I, I think I agree. I will kind of like you did hedge and say, I don't have the same experience as some of the people that were, um, were not happy with portrayals in this movie. And so I'm not going to tell them they're wrong because I don't have their experience to tell them they're right. wrong, but I, there's some stuff here where I'm not sure. So you talk about, about, and you and Eduardo talk about as well, about Thor being played as a fat joke. And maybe he was, but I'm just not certain he was. I think people who are rude people made fun of Thor's weight. And I took it as the audience is meant to be sympathetic of him. Like Tony Stark is a douchebag. Mm -hmm. Rocket Raccoon is a douchebag. Like they're not, and, and, and it's similar to Rocket slapping him. I absolutely agree with there being pushback on that not being how you treat someone in a panic attack. 100% agree. I just don't think Rocket Raccoon is an expert at dealing with people in a panic attack. He's not the person you want dealing with someone having a panic attack. To no. me, and they're like, on a to mission. Me, the bad line is not Rocket slapping someone who's having a panic attack. Because I don't think it's good writing to bring the character out of his personality to do something that doesn't fit the character because this is how you treat someone who's in a panic attack. To me, the problem would be is if we treated it as what Rocket Raccoon did was right and correct. And I don't think in any way the mm -hmm. film did that. Does Thor snap out of it when he gets slapped? Absolutely not. He keeps having a panic attack and slips away. Nothing about this film to me painted Rocket Raccoon as having been a great hero of handling someone who's in a depression. It painted it as... <laughs> right. Oops, Thor got stuck with Rocket. Like, he better go find his mom who's better at this. Like, same thing. Yeah. And then there's a very yeah. important point I want to make about Thor's size in this movie. When Thor gets corrected, when Thor gets to um, 
you know, when we get to our final battle and Thor gets ready to take on Thanos and he's whole again and he's the god of thunder again with du literally dual wielding Mjolnir and Stormbreaker, which is cool. He's still, he is still heavy. He still has that weight. The film did not use Thor's weight as a representation of, you know, he's bad when he's fat and he's good when he's fit. Or he's, like, or he's incapable when he's fat. Right. Mm -hmm. Or he's incapable when he's right. Absolutely. They kept Thor that same size through the, the third act. They had Thor help save the world through the third act with that weight. I don't think the film ever at any point made it so that, you know, Thor's weight was <sighs> problematic, shameful. if you will. Shameful, right? Um, an asshole made fun of him, but that's what assholes do. I don't think they made Thor's weight itself shameful. The one thing, the one thing I might buy is the eat a salad remark, which... Okay, maybe that's a little bit uh And came from his mom. Right. Um and, and again said everything I was planning on saying. So. Right. Again, if, <laughs> if you felt like the treatment of heavy Thor was offensive, I don't have your experience necessarily to understand why. But I did not take this movie as using Thor's weight as the butt of a joke because of the way it was carried through the finality of the film. And I definitely, I definitely don't think that they misrepresented. Um, and, and I can tell you from someone who has dealt with it a lot, both with people around me and myself in bad situations, Thor's panic attack and Thor's inability to deal completely relatable hiding in your house and drinking alcohol and eating bad food and not wanting to talk to anyone can relate because people in this, in this very podcast have busted down my door when I'm in that situation before. So like, <laughs> I don't think that was misrepresented at all. It wasn't played for comedy. And again, I will emphasize nothing about this film to me made it seem like it was saying Rocket was doing the good thing. Rocket was the hero for slapping him. It was saying Thor needs not Rocket Raccoon to get out of this. He needs his mom. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I'm not I... also saying, I'm also, you don't necessarily always need your mom, but Thor had a great mom. So that's why he needed his mom. Yes. Yes. <laughs> what you need is someone who, need who can be caring and empathetic. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> You don't want a bad daddy. <laughs> That's what you're saying. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to make light of it. I, I, I'm glad that we're all in a in a good agreement and, and in a good place. And again, uh, Soundlord might have somewhere to say. I'm sorry. I just want to thank you guys for listening to me go go through this and uh, try my best to tread carefully because, I, like I said, I am a I am a complete understanding of this type of situation, and I like I I totally get it. So, yeah. I don't have too much to add. I think I think you've all covered, um, you know, I was like mentally I had a list of points in my mind and I was like, OK, Rob, you mentioned the salad. You mentioned this. You mentioned that. We're good. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, I can understand why there would be some people who would be upset with some of the things that uh, how it was portrayed. I understand that even if I don't necessarily share that opinion, I, I don't think that they're reading of the film is invalid or incorrect or anything because that's that's one of the things about about film about art media whatever is that everyone brings their experiences to it and, and i think that thor is the sympathetic one there are some jokes that are kind of at his expense but and Again, you could argue, especially with the like, you know, Rhodey saying that there's cheese was flowing through his veins, you know, but that's the kind of thing Rhodey would say. Rhodey's not like a super nice guy. I mean, he's he's a good guy, 
but he's also the sarcastic snarky guy you know he's tony stark's best friend that's what he's gonna do uh <laughs> rocket my god which one of them is not the sarcastic snarky guy <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's... <laughs> peter parker but he's he's dead right now <laughs> um, oh. yeah um it i i think a lot of the humor of Thor's situation comes from him retreating into like laziness, like when he's like falling asleep, but then there is still like an undercurrent of, well, you know, this is a really serious thing that he's dealing with. Mm -hmm. And, and especially the scene with his mother, I think deals with that on the level it deserves. And, and the, and the payoff of him summoning Mjolnir and saying, I'm still worthy. Like that is a really powerful moment i think uh i'd argue it's even a little undercut by the music because the music uh under that scene is the the pop song from the next scene which i think is 1970 or whatever yeah no 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 that's that segues into the, oh uh, oh it's oh um, it's coming uh, get your um, love. Uh, yes coming get no your i love. completely right. agree i'm glad you said that because that's a great transition but i'm not sure that was the right place for that transition because of the weight of that moment yeah yeah so i feel like that undercuts a little bit and actually makes it uh because i mean i remember people cheered when he summoned mjolnir uh to the point where i think we even missed him saying i'm still worthy and, and that realization right there that is the culmination of thor's arc mm -hmm. i think from ragnarok I, i've talked over and over again about how ragnarok infinity war and endgame you could watch as a thor trilogy in some ways and i think that right there I'm still worthy is the culmination of that arc because mm -hmm. it's him realizing that succeeding isn't what makes him a hero. It's the fact that he tries. Yes. It's the fact that he cares. I know just because he failed. Yeah, he failed. Everyone failed to stop Thanos. And he's been between losing Asgard and then losing half of the Asgardians and then losing half of the universe uh, all because uh, things that he blames himself for uh, to varying degrees of truth. I mean, things that he did led to these things happening, but it's not necessarily his fault. If that makes sense. Uh, like, I don't think he's to blame for it. Uh, they, and, and he's been living with that failure, slipping into depression and him realizing that, Hey, you know what? I'm still, I'm still Thor, the God of thunder. I'm still an Avenger. I'm still a hero because in spite of all of this, I'm trying to make things right. And I think that is very important that he realizes that it's not winning that makes him a hero. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. I think we, uh, I think we can put this topic to bed now. I think we've exhausted all, <laughs> <laughs> exhausted all, uh, all talking points on it. Um, I think it does let us talk about Thor's MCU arc as a whole, right? So yeah. when we talk about Thor, since we're talking about Thor already, we're talking about Thor, right? And how Thor's character has changed. I think there are two different Thors. I think there is the Thor from Thor 1, from Avengers, from Thor 2, from Age of Ultron. And then there is Thor post-Ragnarok. 
And while the two Thors share a lot in common, they almost feel like different characters at points. And I think Chris's point of watching the Thor Ragnarok as a Thor trilogy is an astute one because I think it's, even Chris Hemsworth himself has talked about how he feels reinvigorated by the character because of the work that he's been doing post Ragnarok, because of the the direction they were taking him. And I think that's, um, I think we're lucky to still be getting Thor movies and things like that because of that reinvigoration. So thank you, Taika Waititi, for mm-hmm. making Thor Ragnarok and putting us on this path. You know what? I can't even... And maybe it's because this is the way that we've had now seen it on the screen, but kind of intertwining with what we just talked about, I can't even see the old version that Chris Hemsworth was playing, the like more Shakespearean serious Thor. I can't see how his arc would work out in these last few yep. movies that he's in. Well, it just doesn't feel like it would fit. I like it would feel like his his sadness and his hurt might not have as much gravity to it if he didn't change the way that he changed for Thor Ragnarok and going forward. Right, that Thor almost seems like above depression and above. And I don't mean this as a compliment. I just mean it as the way the characters played. He it feels like that Thor is above mourning losing loki and losing half his people and losing frigga it's like he's, he's yeah like, like real perfect. men don't cry right, he's too perfect to to cry over these things like and, yeah. and so i feel like you're right the character kind of had to change sort of like the hulk except we, we, and you know we talked about this last episode they kind of did that with the hulk they had to sort of change you know from edward norton hulk to mark ruffalo hulk to make it work in the mcu the way they did and they did that with thor without even changing the actor um now i think you can say that thor's trauma is what created this character change so i'm not sure it's that like i agree with eduardo there's two characters but i do think the mcu kind of handles why there's two characters but you're right i i we obviously watched this for this episode i went back and watched some of the original avengers before this as well and it doesn't even feel it, it feels like a different character completely different um but you're right i just don't think it would have worked as well but something i'll put forward and you guys can disagree with you on thor is not my favorite avenger in the films but i think he has my favorite arc i think he has my favorite progression my favorite story where he goes from his first film through the through the crossover films into this point um you know the fallen hero even though it's not doesn't deserve to be called a fallen hero um over and over and over again to getting this moment of getting to be himself, relinquish the what he doesn't actually want. Like, if you think about it, the first Thor starts, really the second act kicks because he's mad he's not ruling and he's mad that he doesn't get to just go out and push people around and, you know, the fir- the second act begins with uh, Odin saying, but you're not king! And then we get into here where he's doesn't want to be king he willingly realizes this is not for me there are better people you lead my people valkyrie and steps away and i just think it's a really really fascinating arc they yeah i just <laughs> eduardo threw yeah go ahead you tell him so you tell him. i was thinking about this and i was like they seem like two different characters and they also look like two different yep. characters they look like different people yep. one is way more right? blonde it, 
Right. One is one more blonde. One has like really light skin. The expressions on the their faces are a little different. And, it, and clearly we're looking at two different pictures here, but they look almost like different people. Yeah, def- definitely of... take the time and Google it. Like mm-hmm. if you're listening to this and you can safely look at your phone, uh, Google or you're on PC, Google like Thor one Thor and then Ragnarok Thor and just look at how different it's crazy. Like obviously the haircut but they just they have two different vibes (laughs) right it's so and it feels like that's a that's a choice right that choice is being made to sort of reinvent thor and thor ragnarok Mm -hmm. i don't think i ever realized how young hemsworth was when they Mm -hmm. made thor yeah i know right (laughs) (laughs) that's like he looks like a baby (laughs) a huge burly bearded baby right you know talking about thor's arc here uh, I, I know I am the, the weird one that's I do still argue that there are seeds of Thor now in at least the, the first Thor movie uh, and the first couple, you know, he has a couple moments where things are a little bit lighter. Things are a little bit uh, funnier. He does have some great comedic moments. Uh, now, granted, some of those are born out of the fish out of water stuff in the first Thor movie, uh, which. I think is what let them realize, hey, Chris Hemsworth is actually very funny, has great comic timing. Let's use that. Um, He starts out as so arrogant and he is humbled over and over again. And thinking about it, I think the movie where he's written the worst is probably Ultron. Yep. Uh, Aside from a couple lines, like the, I think like the, the, um, the party scene and also the scene on the Quinjet just before the party scene. Thor is very good. Everything outside that, when he actually has to be a hero, uh, he's just kind of boring and weird. Um, and I think we talked about this on the episode. I think Joss might not get yeah. Thor. Um, well, I think we talked about this on the Ultron episode. There was also supposed to be a lot more. He was supposed to have his whole side quest in that film that got cut out. That yeah. like, It was almost a Thor film at one point. Yeah. Uh, I remember saying after Endgame came out that Thor became the best Avenger so gradually that none of us noticed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and he's still, I mean, he's still, I mean, Captain America, I think is still my, my favorite Avenger. Um, and it's just one of those things like you get your favorite and then that just doesn't change. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, because there's a lot of sentiment wrapped up in that, but my God, I love Thor now. And I, uh, It, I, I remember just like being surprised at how much I was excited about Ragnarok coming out because it looked like it was going to be so good and then it was so good and and just I think Thor has been great the the best moments in in Infinity War I mean first of all is him arriving in Wakanda and he gets some amazing moments in Endgame as well it's like wow Thor is just great and I am rooting for mm-hmm. Thor and I want him to succeed, and I want him to be happy. <laughs> and uh, he's funny, but he also you really care about him, and you're worried about him, and and you feel for him. And it's just so good. And I'm so glad that moving forward into a post Endgame MCU, we are still at least for one more movie going to have mm-hmm. Thor around, and and hopefully for a few movies more. You know, a great way I think we can illustrate that that growth as a character is in this very retrospective um because okay 
who someone someone or a couple of you had Thor as the MVP of Infinity War, right? Did anyone have? Yeah. Okay. I think I did. And I was very close to having it. Um, obviously not going to spoil the MVPs of this episode, but I'm guessing Thor is in the conversation for all of us, whether we pick him or not. His first three appearances, mm-hmm. and we I think we lampshaded this at some point, we didn't even consider Thor as the MVP of his, including his first own two self-titled movies, because Loki was in all of them. But like, right. it wasn't <laughs> just because Loki dominated those movies. It was also because... Thor is, is almost like a vehicle for the movie to happen. Thor is the bland French fry that you dip in the delicious Endgame dip to make it work. Or um, Avengers dip to make it work. It, and then at some point here, Thor, we built up the MCU, built up the MCU, and this original bland character ends up being someone that we consider potentially the MVP of the late stage movies of this franchise. And that's fascinating. I think the have... the real lesson we all just learned here is you should season your food. Oh no, I'm not talking about my own yeah. French fries. I'm talking about other people's French fries. My own no, French I was just speaking fries. out okay. into the world, not okay. you. I, was, I meant like, yeah. I meant the royal yes. you, like you, yes. like you all should season <laughs> you take your that food. That bottle of Red Robin seasoning, it better be half empty from what it was when you sat down at that table. <laughs> I have I have one kind of snidey thing to say is that I think the way that the MCU does Thor is the superior way of doing a character who has godlike mm-hmm. powers and humanizing yep. them whereas superman is a piece of shit good <laughs> there's God. my snidey thing well and like i i think it's really hard to do characters like that and so they have found a way and honestly at, there are times where it feels like thor isn't even that godlike right there are times where you know like we just don't necessarily see Thor because like Thor theoretically has the ability to take on almost any threat. Right. (laughs) But we see him vulnerable a lot and it's tough to do that with a character. So I think understanding that is really important. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, Going, going back to his mythological roots and people always make the, the uh, comparison that comic books are modern day mythology. And if you go back to like, greek myths and norse myths and a lot of those myths the the reason that those pantheons are still studied today like as as literature at least uh i mean we don't have people i mean there are probably some people out there worshiping norse gods uh in spider-man homecoming there's a korean church of asgard i don't know know if we caught that when we talked about it but Apparently, they walk by a Korean church of Asgard in Spider-Man Homecoming. Uh, because I don't know. That's... I wasn't there. Yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> still, still sad about that. Well, we'll be making up for it in a couple weeks, hopefully. Um, but, but anyway, but the reason that those myths have such staying power is because the gods in those stories, the gods and the goddesses, have very human flaws. And that's what leads to all of these uh, all of stories these stories happening. Uh, so Thor, yeah, he has godlike powers, but he is flawed. And I think that is why yep. we like him. I think if you think about it that way too, like you talk about how he, he's supposed to be all powerful and have all this stuff. And if you look at Thor, early Thor, we talked about, he has so many moments in the early movies. I'm specifically thinking of Avengers where he like calls lightning down and just absolutely one shots like mm-hmm. 12 people at a time. Like he is he is the character in the video game that you 
that you get to at the end of the game where you go back to the first area and you just it's shit on everybody. Beam. Like that is exactly he murder beams everybody. And you get to the point where we're in Infinity War and he has a one on one with Thanos and Thanos is able to win. Well, we just spent a long time talking about all of this stuff that he's going through that is making him more human. And I think that that might be part of stuff that's kind of, um, you know, taking away his, his lack of confidence might be taking away some of his power level. If you want to call it a power level, I don't know if it's over 9,000 at that point, it surely is not. Um, but I, I think that has something to do with it. I don't know. I, I don't need to necessarily turn this into a hating on the DC universe podcast, but we've done it before. Mm-hmm. I just, <laughs> I'm kind of on a, I'm kind of on a tangent from the stream that I had earlier talking about the DC universe stuff. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Somebody stop no, I'm me. with you. And, and well, one thing I will say is I think everyone here would like a good DC universe. Yeah. I don't think anyone, this podcast is the variety of person who is, wants dc to fail so they appreciate the dc movies are bad because that means that marvel is winning no, none of us no. are like that i would like both universes to be great mm-hmm. um so do you know I, how I long i wanted a that, batman but... and superman movie and then we got that one yep we got that one yep that's how i feel oh. that's how i feel yes i am more of a marvel fanboy but i would have loved a good batman versus yeah. superman movie instead of <laughs> <laughs> this is a side tangent but uh thinking about some discussions that were happening we earlier off uh, off air. I'm going to defend Superman a little bit uh, because I I used to not really care about Superman uh, until until I actually finally read some Superman comics and I, I I enjoy the 70s Superman movies, the the Richard Donner ones. Oh. And <laughs> I haven't watched them since like I was in high school, but um they're a little corny but but i i like what superman stands for yes he's like super powerful and i understand people thinking oh that's boring he can just do anything because he's superman uh but like when you when you get to like and i think this is where man of steel missed the mark is that they didn't make him a a, you know they talk about him being a symbol of hope and he absolutely is not a symbol of hope in those movies He's just a big, punchy guy that knocks down buildings and makes people sad. <laughs> big punchy guy. Yeah. Big punchy guy. And then, in in the proper handling of the universe, you have the arc. And so you would have, like, a second act of the... Not necessarily within the movie, but maybe a second Superman movie or a second DC movie, where you see Superman as a symbol of hope. Where you see that he's risen above being punchy, sad guy. And... <laughs> they didn't yeah. do that immediately the next time you see that superman immediately okay there's a statue but that it was entirely not convincing because people still clearly hate this person so you never even got that moment of seeing superman be yeah, superman. you start off batman um, versus superman from batman's perspective watching superman just wreck stuff and mm-hmm. I, I came to this realization the other day that the problem with the Zack snyder uh dc movies is that he was so excited to get to the deconstruction of Batman and Superman and these superheroes that they never took the time to construct them first. <laughs> and you have to build them up before you deconstruct it. And then, especially with someone like Superman, 
eventually you have to get to the point where you then reaffirm what Superman is. And mm-hmm. no, it's just like, I really think he wanted to do the Injustice storyline. Uh, which mm-hmm. Injustice, uh, the comics and, and the fighting game, that story, those stories work because it's a deconstruction of the Superman that we all know. But you right. can't just jump right into that because then it's just like, oh, this alien just came and started killing people. <laughs> I also just, I don't even see Injustice anyway as like the, like, Maybe when you know, you know when you're trying to expand your universe and add more stories, you start mining injustice. But if you're trying to get to some great stories as fast as you can, I don't see injustice as one of the ones you gotta no. get to. Like it, it's it's not the Sinister Six. Yeah, give give me give me the Superman movie <laughs> where it's that the those pages that go around all the time, uh, where he sits on the building with the girl who's contemplating, mm-hmm. uh, con- you know, contemplating jumping. And he just talks to her. It's like that—that's the Superman I like. You know, I think of Batman versus Superman. I think of that Pete Holmes sketch of Batman and Superman, (laughs) (laughs) where Batman is making fun of Superman's costume, and he's like, "It's my people's symbol for hope," and he's like, "Hope starts with an H, stupid." Uh, I love those. I love Batman. He's Pete Holmes is so good in those sketches. We. We're not even off the rails at this point, guys. We're on like four different trains. <laughs> We're going to need a part four. So everyone was convinced and happy with Thor's Yes, life. Thor's great. Okay. Thor's good. amazing. Yes. Next line. Thor is still unconvinced. And he likes his closure. <laughs> so Frigga writes a love letter to the MCU. <laughs> it cheers him up. Thor is still unconvinced and sneaks away when Rocket heads more to than Jane's just bedroom. Frigga, Thor's mother, notices her 2023 son and confronts him, realizing he is from the future. Jane wakes up in her room and Rocket sneaks up behind her with the device ready. Thor talks to Frigga about all his failure, but she is able to console him, uh, calling fallibility normal. Thor is able to get his closure and reassurance from having a parting and loving conversation with his mother. Rocket escapes from Asgardian guards after taking the reality stone from Jane. He says hi to Frigga, then insists it's time to go back to 2023. His confidence restored, Thor has Rocket wait a moment while he calls Mjolnir 2012 to his hand, asserting he is still worthy, and the two shrink down to quantum size. Also, the Asgardians yelling, Get that rabbit! is just a nice (laughs) gag. (laughs) I did not notice and, that. Yeah. No, yeah, that's so funny. Mm-hmm. And we um, we talked about the transition of this scene, and, and we're going into more like, in a minute. But how well into the scene they do a needle drop for "Come and Get Your Love." That was one of my favorite um, crowd reactions, and we haven't talked about crowd reactions really much yet, um, because my whole theater in suburban Florida, when they heard that music starting, my whole theater was clapping a clapping and cheering while Thor is still on screen while Rocket is still on screen while Frigga's on screen we don't even see Star-Lord I had this theater clapping and cheering to come and get your love because they recognized what was coming next (laughs) and I thought that was a neat moment you know it's cool and I just started thinking about this now how they sat down at the writer's room for this and they were like you know what we should do we should put everyone in an Ant-Man suit and everybody was like yeah That's a really good idea. And so basically everybody in this movie (laughs) is also an ant person. 
Whoa. Yep. Ant-Men and the Wasp. Yeah, this is an Avengers yeah. Endgame. This is Ant-Men Endgame. Yeah, the Ant-Avengers. The Ant-Avengers. <laughs> Morag, 2014. Nebula and War Machine are dropped off approximately at the start of Guardians of the Galaxy to wait Starlord's arrival so they can take the Power Stone when he opens the vault. Hawkeye and Black Widow take the Benatar, previously shrunk down and given to them by Rocket, to Vormir to gain the Soul Stone. The Nebula, with Nebula having set the autopilot to get them there. Nebula urges care to War Machine, pointing out that there are other people in 2014 looking for the Power Stone. Thanos, Gamora, and herself. Nebula 2014 is fighting a battle on another planet when she gets in danger. She is rescued by her sister Gamora, saying the two need to meet with their father as he's located a Soul Stone. Orbiting above the planet, Gamora and Nebula discuss the Power Stone being located on Morag when their father Thanos arrives, bringing the Infinity War villain back to the story. Now, Chris, this is Thanos, right? But it's also it is Thanos. not Thanos, right? Uh, it's, is it's, it more uh... of a love letter to Thanos? I'm sorry. Please go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, how many times are they going to say that? <laughs> Oh, it's gonna keep coming. Oh, yeah, oh, you. Yeah. This is a love lore, love letter to uh, Mysterio. This movie. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to it. Um, yeah, so so we meet Thanos here. We re meet Thanos, and this is Thanos circa Guardians of the Galaxy, where compare guard. Think think back, and I think we even talked about this in the Guardians episode. Um, you get. One and a half scenes with Thanos in Guardians of the Galaxy. And he's sitting in his chair and he's making these proclamations and pronouncements and he's speaking kind of dramatically. You know, I will bathe the starways with your blood. And I don't care for your politics, boy. And all that stuff. And he just sits back and does his thing and waits for everyone else to do the work for him. And that is very different from the Thanos we see in Infinity War. Right, And we talked at length about what a great character and a great villain Thanos is in Infinity War. The uh, just a believable, multi-dimensional, um, just, just a really well-rounded, interesting character uh, that you want to see fail, uh, which, which you should want for a villain. And, and how he is just... Probably aside from Loki, probably the the best villain that the MCU has ever done, which is what you were hoping for with Thanos, but what the previous track record of villains in the MCU, along with the previous treatment of Thanos in his brief cameos, left you wondering before you went into it, are they going to be able to pull it off? And they did. And it's interesting, and it's intentional. I know it's intentional, and and Robbie, you watched the the Mm -hmm. commentary, so you can speak to this even better than I can. Uh, but it, it reads as intentional that the Thanos that we see here, you know, Thanos matured in some ways, I think, between where we saw him in Guardians and where we saw him in Infinity War. Uh, I, I joked about how he was the boss that sits in the office and sends other people to do the things for him uh, that, that he should be doing himself. And that's what this Thanos is. You know, uh, when we see him, uh, he's got blood on his helicopter sword, which, by the way, is that a, supposed to be a reference to the Thanos copter? 
The fact that his sword is basically helicopter blades. I guess that's possible. <laughs> I choose to believe that. <laughs> that's the MCU take on the Thanos copter. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know what the Thanos copter is, please Google Thanos copter. It's exactly what you think it is. It's a helicopter that Thanos drives that has the word Thanos on the tail that he used to steal the cosmic cube from Hellcat and Spider-Man. Um, Hellcat! <laughs> yeah. If it's safe for you to use your phone to do this right now. Yes, yeah. Just for you guys to know, if you're not super versed on the MCU, but you've watched Jessica Jones, uh, Jessica Jones' blonde friend, who's the, the radio host, that's Hellcat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, anyway, Patsy Walker in the comics. Uh, I guess yeah. they gave her a grown-up name for Netflix, but <laughs> but she's Patsy Walker. Okay, we're going to go over a little bit of a tangent here. Patsy Walker started out as a romance comic character, mm-hmm. but because Marvel decided in the '60s that all their comics were connected, she was a romance comic character who also happened to be friends with these superheroes and became a superhero mm-hmm. herself. And in the modern Marvel comics continuity. She's grappling with the fact that her mother wrote these romance comics about her. Uh, So she's a comic character who is a superhero in the comics universe. But anyway, Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, Thanos has just come back from, you know, negotiating with Ronan somehow or other. Uh, But then it's from then on, it's all they're going to get us the stones. They're going to get us the stones. And even uh, in the final you know, when when they attack the Avengers compound, he comes out of his ship and Nebula, evil Nebula, says to him, what will you do? And he says, wait, and you'll bring the stones to me. And then he just sits his ass down and does nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what kind of villain is that? Like, he is he is now the Marvel villain that everyone was afraid that Thanos was going to be in Infinity War because that is who Thanos was in 2014. And it's intentional. And it, but it, it works. It makes sense. It makes him a less interesting character in this movie. I don't necessarily think that is a bad thing, though, because Infinity War was the Thanos movie, and Endgame is right. the Avengers movie. So I agree with that. So I, so I think that works. Uh, it's just an interesting choice. Um, and and and. I think this is also partially why they they killed off interesting Thanos in the first 10 minutes of this movie. And mm-hmm. that's why it was such a gut punch because uh, because not only was it like, oh, wow, they really have lost, but also we wanted to see them get their revenge on Thanos. We wanted to see them wallop him. <laughs> and we were kind of robbed of that. So uh, they even as you said, lampshaded a little bit in the final battle, there are times where it's like, oh, the stakes, oh, wow, Wanda's fighting Thanos, and he's like, I don't know who you are. <laughs> and so it almost mm-hmm. it makes it less personal for him, except for the fact that we know he hates the Avengers because they ruined his plans in 2012. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, uh, all of that's true. There's less of a connection to this Thanos. But you're right that all of it's intentional. They, they, re- they talk about that on the commentary. I think they've talked about it elsewhere. Um, I know that where I've seen, not from the commentary, but where I've seen it elsewhere, when Infinity War was coming out, some of the comic book fans, and I'll admit I was one of them, they were upset that clearly Thanos wasn't going to be in his armor in this movie, in Infinity War, and that was a disappointment, because Thanos' armor is iconic, and they had made it look cool in the MCU. But what the Russos wrote was that Thanos, as he gets closer to the stones, and as he matures... It becomes almost a spiritual event to him. So he starts removing his armor to, A, because he doesn't need it. He's got infinity stones. 
Um, but also they were using it the same way they used the, the Avengers hair to like show these are the different Avengers. These are the different times. This is how they've grown because their hair changed like his device. <laughs> Thanos's armor was a device, you know, our almost anti-hero, but I want to say that very carefully. Thanos is a Thanos who has, you know, shed his armor. Whereas in this movie we have, uh, to use a Russo term, we have the, um, uh, the brutalizer Thanos, I think is what they call Oh, the butcher Thanos. Mm. He's got his armor all through this film. The first time we see him, he walks through a doorway covered in blood. Like this is a different Thanos. And that's actually something I remember some people complaining about with this film. They're like, it feels like it's a different villain because it is. If you watch Thor the first time he's on screen and Thor this time, he's a different person. Thanos grew as he got closer to his stone quest, as he stopped, stopped delegating and started actually pursuing the stone's, Personally, Thanos changed. Um, still a villain, but I think a villain who's a little bit more thoughtful about what he's doing. This Thanos is more the Mad Titan, more the conquering Thanos, um, because those years of uh, kind of growth as he got closer to the end of his quest didn't happen to him yet. Um, which is, again, going to be clear in case you didn't listen to the other episodes. None of us are the, are the uh, well, when you're adult, you realize Thanos is the one that makes sense. None of us are that person. Nope. So I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying that this Thanos is intentionally less complex. Partly, partly because if you think about it, Thanos' role in this film is purely fan service. And I mean that in a good way, but when you think about it, this film can just be the time heist. This film can just be them going, getting the stones, and saving everybody. You don't need to write Thanos into that film. They add that tension in the film to basically give us a incredible third act of fan service. And I'm glad they did. I'm not criticizing it in any way whatsoever. But that's why Thanos exists in this film. And so you need a more simplistic Thanos. You need a more simplistic, this is a bad guy, he's a super violent bad guy, and we're gonna beat him in this cool scene that's coming up. And so that's kind of why he's there. But I mean, I think you're right. It's a completely different Thanos. It's kind of jarring when you watch the films back to back, but it still makes full sense. Yeah, I don't disagree at all. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so Thanos... Ex- Peaches, do you disagree? Does Peaches disagree? I can't even tell. What? Is he even here? Oh. You yeah, I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> we were asking if he disagreed. <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm, dude, I, I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. I, okay, I, I just personally, the only thing I really have to add is I like that the first scene of this movie, he walks in covered in blood because it is kind of like a hate idiots who think Thanos is the good guy. <laughs> yep. That is a good point. That is a very good point. But that's it. Thanos explains that he will be dispatching Ronan who we know dispatches his own minion, Korath, to retrieve the stone, and ascending Nebula and Gamora to assist him. Nebula begins to swear that she will not fail Thanos, but is then interrupted when her wavelengths cross those of the future Nebula, allowing Gamora and Thanos to see and hear that Nebula's conversation with War Machine. Nebula is brought to Sanctuary, where the Ebony Ma probes her memory. He's able to pull out her meeting prior to the time heist at the Avenger complex, indicating it was not her own memory, but an overlapping memory from the future emanating from another nebula existing in the reality. 
Thanos recognizes the Avengers in the memory and realizes Nebula is in their midst, though not the same Nebula, and insists on seeing all her memories from the future. Yes, Robbie? Can I just point out that as you were reading the notes that I wrote, I was like, no, that's wrong, because in the very notes I'm written, written about the movie that I've watched several times, including recently, I am getting confused about what's going on. <laughs> Woo, time heist. That's where they see the, uh, where they kill Thanos, right? That's where they see that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Peter Quill arrives You're on right, Morag singing, come and get your oh, love. That's where he gets to see himself saying, I am inevitable. Yes. <laughs> yes. I like that line. I'm going to use that. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Peter Quill arrives on Morag singing, come and get your love. Uh, War Machine says, so he's an idiot then. On screen, a scene is a transition from Thor calling Mjolnir with an overlapping needle drop of the song. War Machine knocks out Quill and takes his tool for breaking into the Power Stone vault. This scene... First off, this original scene from the first Guardians is already one of my favorite scenes in the entire MCU. And then they had to go and bring it back here and make me love it twice as much in this movie. It's amazing. This scene was already so good and somehow they made it better. It's a love letter to the original Guardians. (laughs) (laughs) Question about it. Is it or is it the same footage from the from Guardians or did they reshoot some of it? They reshot it. They reshot it. Yeah, they, they reshot, reshot everything. Thing. Yeah. Uh, okay. I wasn't sure because it is like it's. I've never actually. I've never actually watched them like back to back, but my memory of it, which is pretty recent, is that they're like identical. The the cut to him singing where the where the music cuts out and we're hearing what is actually happening mm-hmm. is so funny. It's mm-hmm. such a great twist on movies in general, where it's like, we're playing this because, because the music is somewhat diegetic because that's what he's actually listening to. Um, but also kind of non-diegetic because it's, we're hearing it the way he's hearing it. So then cutting out to hearing what someone walking by would have heard is just hilarious. It's just so well done. Well, and it's it's a funny, it's similar, and you already touched on this so much, um, Chris, but it's similar to that Avengers scene in at the end of Defeating Loki, where it's like, okay, the first time you saw the scene, it's cool and it's heroic. Now we're going to show you the funny like reality of, of the cleanup. And so this scene is the first time you see this, yes, it's funny, but also this is badass. This is our hero shot the fact that Star-Lord ends up being kind of inept and dumb after the sequence in Guardians is intentional because it starts as, look at what a badass he is. Oh, he's actually kind of a fuck-up. Here, they're showing, hey, remember that scene where the hero looked so badass? What if we step back and realize, oh, he's just singing to himself badly with a Walkman. That's not very badass. And you're right, like, that's that's such a great comedy beat. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm with Eduardo. That Both versions of this scene are two of the best scenes in the MCU. Just It was one of the best scenes in Guardians, and then this is just one of the funniest, most entertaining scenes in this movie to just take that scene and twist it from what it's like to be in the third person. So leave Chris Pratt alone, okay? Y'all don't stop coming for Chris Pratt. He'll stop doing scenes like this. Like, come on, leave the man alone. All right? Star-Lord was just trying to do his own thing, you know? He was just mad, that's all. (laughs) 
Nebula pulls away the Power Stone using her robotic arm, and she and Rhodey have a moment to talk about bad breaks, turning them both into cyborgs. I wasn't always That's like a nice this. Moment. Me either, yeah, but we this is my what we've got, favorite. right? Oh. When War Machine tricks down to quantum size, Nebula is interrupted by her own connection to her 2014 self and realizes Thanos knows they're here. Thanos finds the memory of his death, but is satisfied, realizing in the end, he won. The Maw attempts to kill Nebula, but Thanos saves her, saying the 2014 version will have a chance to prove she is more loyal than she is in 2023. Nebula from 2023 runs to the drop shit. What? Runs to the drop ship to warn Hawkeye and Black <laughs> Widow, but is unable to reach them before Korath. No, that ship was earlier. Arrives. God, I really am Ron Burgundy. There to retrieve the Power Stone and abducts her. On sanctuary, I am Ron Burgundy. <laughs> I'm Ron Burgundy. On sanctuary, Nebula 2014 beats up Nebula 2023, with 23 trying to appeal to Gamora, saying she can uh, she can stop all of this. Um, uh, Nebula from 2014 takes a piece from 2023's head to appear as future Nebula and hands Thanos a vial of Pym particles. Which no one noticed. I swear to God, everyone who saw this movie but the four of us kept saying, how did he figure out how to do the Pym technology? She handed him Pym particles. They, the camera focuses on him handing her her handing him Pym particles. And I swear everyone said that was a plot hole when it was in plot hole, Chris. <laughs> When it was in the film, they highlight her handing him a file of pin particles. Really? I don't remember hearing any complaints about this. But... Man, I heard it constantly. Huh. I was so mad. Yeah, I don't remember. You guys are lucky. <laughs> Keep going. We're, we're to the not fun part now. Vormir. Clint Barton <laughs> and Natasha Romanoff arrive on Vormir and climb the Cliff? mountain. I'm sorry, Clint Barton. I read Mountain and I called him Cliff. Cliff Mountain. Hill <laughs> Barton arrives <laughs> with Valley Romanov. Steve Martin. <laughs> Where the soul stone was found. The two meet the Red Skull and are told the rule of giving up something you love to obtain the stone. They try and reason another solution, but realize Gamora's death is proof there is only one way to get the stone. They repeat the rallying cry of the time heist, whatever it takes. Each of them wordlessly realizes the other is willing to kill themselves to recover the stone. Natasha says her life for the past five years has been fully about saving people, including the Barton family, giving her, giving her life for others. The two emotionally fight, with Barton getting the upper hand and throwing himself off the cliff. Before he's able to hit the ground, Nat catches up and tethers him to the cliff face as Clint clings to her for dear life. Nat insists it's okay and pushes off from a tearful Clint, falling to her death. And she pushes off of the cliff. Editor's note. I have no idea how to write this with the proper emotional gravity it deserves. We'll have to do that ourselves. Gravity did its work. We've done a great job. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Good God. <laughs> what, is that, what is that joke from that, that silly boat ride um, about skydiving and it not being for you? 
If at first you don't succeed, <laughs> <laughs> skydiving is not for you. Oh no! All right, Robbie. Yeah, it's a tough scene, right? Uh, just a little. Just a little. Just a little and, bit. And it's a tough scene that didn't necessarily get received very well either. Um, so hey, more minefields, guys. Then uh, this was the minefield <laughs> episode. We already dealt with uh, fat shaming Thor, so now we'll talk about killing the MCU's most iconic female character. Um. I definitely do think this is the right time for us to reflect on Natasha Romanoff as more than just, which I actually think we've done a lot of on this podcast, but more than just her death. But also I want to like open up discussion about her death, which is something that has been and is still completely obliterated. Now I think that the, I think the anger over Natasha Romanoff's death stems from more than just this scene. I think a lot of it is how she was treated in the MCU overall. And that's something we've talked about. She never got her own film. Um, they decided that she didn't get to have action figures because boys wouldn't buy female action figures. I just got um, sad because she should have had her own film like two weeks ago. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. And we definitely, like, especially in the Ultron episode, we talked about, like, yeah, no, that's that's bad. And the Russos actually address one of the parts that this scene looks particularly bad on the commentary. And I mentioned that they didn't realize this and that was not intentional. When you think about the thing that's really criticized in Ultron is this whole thing where she gets um, a hysterectomy and that makes her worthless because she can't have a family. And then what does she do in this scene? She decides that the person who has a family, he gets to live and she doesn't and, and she kills herself. And a lot of people interpreted that as, showing that Clint is more worth living because he has a family than getting to live because he has a family and Natasha's not. And the Russos pointed out that's not what they were going for. They were going for she's trying to save the world. She's trying to save her family, which is the Avengers. Yes, she cares about saving Clint and his family as well. But it's it's not just that. It's not this one person with his one family is more valuable than my life. Um, that's not what they were going for. And, and I, I will... I'll, I'll trust them on that, but I do understand why that was upsetting to some people. As far as her death in this film, though, I am sad that Natasha Romanoff isn't in the third act of this movie. I am sad that one scene in particular she's not in, and I think that one's obvious. Mm-hmm. That said, I don't think you keep the character alive just because the character is popular. I don't think you keep a character alive just as a service to the character. I think if the character's death suits the story, the character dies. And I think that this death made sense for Black Widow. I think the character who was written, I think her arc of her realizing that she cares about the greater good, I think that made sense for this story. And so I think her sacrificing herself made sense for the story. What I will absolutely buy into, and I don't think it was mistreatment of Black Widow to kill her here, because I think it was an incredibly heroic and important and emotional death. I think it makes her bigger than if she had survived and ridden off into the sunset. And I, so I, I don't find that as mistreatment. What I will buy, and this is a pacing issue and movies are hard, what I'll buy that, that people have talked about is that Iron Man has this massive funeral scene 
and Black Widow has a couple people sitting around at the lake for a few minutes before they decide we need to move on and move move the plot forward. I do understand that it feels like there wasn't a proper memorial for this character that a lot of people loved who they already thought was being mistreated. And I think they're right on that, um, was already being mistreated. That said, I think a lot of the mistreatment and complaint of Black Widow in the MCU comes prior to this film. I don't think this scene is the mistreatment of Black Widow. Um, I am sensitive to the fact that people thought it was. I, I don't necessarily know that they're wrong, but I don't get that from this. Um, I think there was a larger issue with how Black Widow was treated in the MCU. I'm glad she's getting her film. And I think this is a situation that should have been corrected long before she threw herself off a cliff in Vormir. But I personally feel her death was moving and important and incredibly heroic and was, you know, we talked about the, the original Avengers getting their closure in this film. And I think that, I think that Natasha's death was strong. Um, there is something that takes me out of this moment that is not her dying that I'll get to. But first I want to ask you guys, like, how... Do you disagree with me? Do you disagree with everyone else? Like, or half of everyone else? How did do you feel about the controversy over Natasha Romanoff dying here? It's... I... This is one of those things, and as many times as I've watched this movie and given it thought, I really don't know how I feel about it. I, I remember when I first watched it, I was mostly just sad that mm -hmm. one of the original Avengers had died. Mm -hmm. You know, and the sad that, and that Black really Widow had died. Yeah, it, it's you know it's really well done. I mean, it, Natasha and Clint have this great friendship through the movies, and, and you see how close they are. So it is. It makes sense that they'd go off together like this for this mission, and you know they get to Vormir, and I think you you think about it, mm -hmm. even just knowing because. It's, this is dramatic irony. Again, you know what they don't. You know what the price mm -hmm. is for the Soul Stone. So you're like, they go up to Vormir and you're like, one of them is going to die. And you watch that whole sequence knowing that. And also, they get sent off to Vormir. And the rest of this, as Eduardo said at the beginning, we broke this up and we're focusing on one aspect of the time heist at a time. But the movie cuts between all of them until it gets to Vormir. When they get mm -hmm. to Vormir, they do that whole story yep. at once. And they say no it for the end, anything and you know else. it's coming. Yeah, and and then when that ends, that's when we then cut back to the present and everyone reunited. So the last thing we're seeing is Natasha's dead. You know, you know Natasha's died. Clint has a soul stone, and now we're back. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and they saved the, you know, the... All the other storylines, yeah, they've got some serious bits to them, but it's mostly fun. Yes. You know, it, it's a lot of fun. And then this one is like really, really, you know, deep and heavy. Um, yeah, it's it's hard because especially rewatching these movies for this podcast made me realize how much I like Black Widow. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Same. I... Um, you know, I, I really like her in, in Winter Soldier, especially, you know, and some of the other, st you know, her, her arc. Again, she's one of those sort of like Hulk, although Hulk did get his own movie to start with. But much like Hulk, she only was ever able to develop in other people's movies or or in team up movies. 
So while I've been looking forward to there being a Black Widow movie, and I wish that none of this COVID stuff had happened because then we'd be able to be talking about this scene with the knowledge of what happens in Black Widow in mind. Uh, I was really hoping that would happen, but obviously uh, that's not the world we're living in right now. Uh, where we're currently in the the time between uh, the five years later <laughs> ourselves. Um, not saying that we're not going to be able to see Black Widow for five years, but you know what I mean. We're in the, the, the scary part right now. It, it's just... I, I, I totally understand every bit of criticism towards her death in this. The idea that it's, oh, she's sacrificing herself because Clint has a family and therefore he deserves to live. I don't necessarily think that even if that is part of her thoughts, I, I didn't see it as I don't have a family. I should die. It's my best friend and his family who I also care very deeply about one of the kids. Well, isn't it, isn't it like, so, so Peter, the one that they ended up naming after, uh, after, after Quicksilver, who was supposed to be named after her when they thought it was going to be a girl. Isn't, don't they show like, isn't his middle name something like Nathaniel? I think isn't so. Isn't it like Peter Nathaniel? Yeah. And what, so, so one of the kids is named after her. She's Auntie Nat. Auntie Dot. Auntie Knot. Auntie Knot. <laughs> I am so tired, guys. I'm hell sorry. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Um, oh, oh, it's one of those character carings I was talking about. <laughs> yeah. um, but but she's Auntie Nat. You know, so that's in, in many ways, it's also her family that she's dying for, not to mention her Avengers family. And and I think back to the whole I've got red in my ledger and I want to wipe it out. Mm-hmm. That being said, in this movie, Clint's got a hell of a lot of red in his ledger now, too. Yes. So that doesn't necessarily counterbalance. But he's and he but he tries. He even like, he makes that, that argument. tries as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I I don't know how else it could have been done. I, mm-hmm. I, I really don't know what what it what I would do differently. I don't know. What, what do you guys think? I feel like I said a lot of nothing. I... <laughs> Robbie, here's what I'm going to do. Okay. I'm going to take what you said. I'm going to cherry pick certain parts, maybe misquote you a little bit, and talk about something completely different. <laughs> oh, God. All right. So a character should not stay alive if it doesn't fit the story, right? Like, if it fits the story, the character should die, right? It shouldn't be fan service. Or should be allowed to die. Let me put it that way. Should be allowed to die if it fits a story. There shouldn't be fan service. People shouldn't necessarily be upset the character has died, even though you want to see them other things, right? I think being upset is fine. I think it's what... I just don't see it as vindictive, which is what people seem to think. They seem to think this was vindictive towards Black Widow. I'm fine with... I I think being upset about her death is perfectly reasonable. I, I thought it was the and maybe I'm wrong and and there probably are people that are just upset that she died because uh, that happens there, all the time there, whenever there any character and anything dies there are always going to be people like um I mean there's the whole bring back Ben Solo movie. I keep bringing up nine I'm so <laughs> sorry um but that's like a whole thing now people want them to reshoot episode nine and have Ben Solo not die 
Um, that's a okay. that's a thing. Um, yeah, I don't. I, yeah. Um, I, I, but I guess I thought that the the implication was that people were more upset with how her death was handled rather than the fact that she died at all. Uh, but I, I could be wrong, and it could be that both of those are are. It, it's a mixture. It's both. Yeah. Okay. I'm, Where are you yeah, going? I'm with trying to steer. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying sorry. to steer Robbie in a general direction here. Okay. So back to my point, right? Uh, He's trying to lawyer you. We shouldn't you. be He's vindictive about things like this. You know, if a character for the sake of the story if it makes sense like we shouldn't try to keep the character around for fan service blah 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 blah, blah. all right oh, i get it now <laughs> i'm there ultimate spider-man mm-hmm. miles morales mm-hmm. peter parker mm-hmm. the death of peter parker one of robbie's least favorite things to ever happen in a comic book universe Correct. using this logic robbie mm-hmm. Why are you so vindictive? So, because there's a difference. There weren't going to continue to be Black Widow. If they, now, so if we're going to keep the MCU together because these characters are going to keep making movies, that's fine. But I didn't see her death as meaning, like, I, I saw her death as Scarlett Johansson is going to be leaving this franchise. We need to give her an exit. I didn't see her death as, well, they killed her, so now they can't do any more Black Widow movies. Partly because they're new in another Black Widow movie. When they killed Spider-Man out of the Ultimate Universe, it was they don't have to pay an actor to a contract to have Spider-Man on the pages. I would understand killing Peter Parker in the last Spider-Man movie when you're not going to be able to make more Spider-Man movies. You can keep making Spider-Man comics, which is why they eventually brought him back, which is one of the problems with comic books. Um, There's a difference between a comic book page that doesn't have an actor and a movie that has an actor that, you know, eventually you need to write them off. So you're saying the difference is... One is a movie and one is a comic book, and because of the medium, you yeah. get a pass. Yes, and I'm also not saying that Black Widow had to die. I'm saying it's not vindictive to kill her. So it is vindictive to kill Peter Parker? In the case of Ultimate Spider-Man, it absolutely was. You think it was vindictive? Yes, it <laughs> I also meant this was to a... be a quick joke. I didn't think Robbie was going to push back so much. Also, also a major Have you difference. met Robbie? <laughs> Also, a major difference is the death of Peter Parker in Ultimate Spider-Man was a terrible, poorly written story. Who's Robbie? <laughs> I'm sorry, I meant Peaches. I. Oh yeah, yeah, Peaches. <laughs> I very much disagree because I've recently read the death of Peter Parker in Ultimate Spider-Man. I really? thought it was Man, very I hated good. it. I thought it was very good, but I was also on the Miles Morales side, so all of that I made mean, sense to me. The problem is, there's no reason you couldn't have Peter Parker and Miles Morales. And they eventually do, but it's a yes. Peter Parker from a different reality, and then well, you get and, into the Spider Verse and blah. But blah, blah, they've blah. brought back. They also brought eventually a couple of years ago brought Ultimate Spider Man back to life. Ultimate Peter Parker Spider Man. Yes. And I, and I, correct me if I'm wrong. They merged the universes, so now Peter Miles Morales is in the. <laughs> yes, and also Miles, Miles is Morales in the six is, is in the six one six universe. Correct. God, this got. Yeah. We went. Right. <laughs> I expected this. Where we got. A- Somehow we got a fifth Bought train. The universe I don't know how, who's conducting also. it. <laughs> um, well, and I don't think there's anything wrong with being upset that Natasha Romanoff died and being like personally hurt by her death because you have a connection to the character. And I really don't think people are wrong or saying the character was underutilized and then killed. I just don't think her death, her dying, 
is vindictive. I don't think that Clint Barton should have died when you know that neither of them are going to be in a future movie just because you like Natasha more. If anything, I feel like it works better for the person that I cared about more to die because it makes that mo that death more meaningful. If Hawkeye died in the scene, I'm going to be honest, I never got attached to Hawkeye in these films. He was fine in these films, but I wasn't actually going to be sad about Hawkeye dying. I am sad about Black Widow dying. This movie brought emotion out of me because Man. a character I love died. And I I'm glad you said that first because I didn't want to say it first. <laughs> <laughs> that because when we got around to my opinion, that's what I was gonna say. <laughs> oh man. No, expand. No, it's just it's just one of those things that like, okay, we've talked extensively about Natasha's arc and how she starts as kind of like a cameo character with a little slight bit more depth than just a cameo and then they kind of did her wrong for a while but then she's on the right path going forward and then she's gone and it's for a great cause um you know saving all of humanity um and it's just kind of a bummer that that character is now gone from this yep. universe it's cool that we get a movie but she, of the two of them, had much more development, had much more interesting development, was going in a direction that started to look really promising. And then, sadly, she's not there. If Hawkeye would have died instead, I probably would have been <laughs> not as sad that he went. Because in all the movies he's in, he's just kind of the same character. He's just kind of the same character right. three times. Four times, however many movies he's in. And yeah, we get a little bit more in-depth in his life because we see that he has a family. But that's like the end of the list, right. man. Like, there's not that much else we know or learn about Hawkeye. Like, he's got some good friends that are parts of S.H.I.E.L.D. and he's got a family. We don't know anything else about him. So It's just like the other major death in this movie. Like, anyone could have put on that gauntlet and snapped. You could write anyone's death into that scene. But it doesn't mm -hmm. work if it's not a character we have an attachment to. So you, yeah, like <laughs> Chris. No. Sorry, I, no, I was gonna make oh. a dumb joke, but I couldn't think of a good enough character. I was gonna say it would be like if Mbaku got it and goes, "And I am Mbaku." <laughs> <laughs> so Chris, you kind of because it's challenge day. <laughs> <laughs> when is your god now? So Chris, you, you kind of touched braised. on it. And I'd like to talk a little bit happier about Black Widow, um, but I think what's also important in this movie is it's is the end of her arc. Um, and I, I think one of the more interesting things about this podcast has been going back and realizing, man, Black Widow was a really good character. Like, and I knew that people liked her and I definitely liked Black Widow, but this podcast made me really realize I really, really like Black Widow. And I think I had such a bad taste about her in Ultron in my mom, in my, my mouth. And it's not about the character being unlikable it's not about um scarlett johansson playing her poorly how she was written in ultron left such a bad taste in my mouth that this was such a, a disrespectful character that i think that clouded originally my opinion of the character as a whole and of course i see you know on twitter mm -hmm. i see people railing about black widow but a lot of times it's lack of film understandable and picking on ultron understandable and I think that kind of clouded my perception until we watched all these films in a con concentrated setting that when you remove Ultron, 
I'm not saying she was given enough screen time in the, the universe, but I am saying the screen time she was given, she's great. Like, great. Um, mm -hmm. She She's fantastic in Iron Man 2. She's fantastic in Avengers. She is... I think some of us had her MVP of of um, Winter Soldier, and she's Winter great Soldier. there. And then... I'm trying to remember, but yeah. Everything she's in, she does a great job, except for Ultron. She wasn't given enough great job, but her arc is also very convincing of this, you know, we don't see villain Black Widow, but we see convincing evidence that there was villain Black Widow. We see her start to get convinced, pulled out of that gray area she's in with S.H.I.E.L.D., um, you know, with Steve trying to tell her, I need to trust you in uh, Civil War, to her in this film becoming a hero of being, you know, I need to be the last person at wall. I need to defend this universe. And that's part of why I think her death to me never hit me as she's dying because she doesn't have a family. Her death hit me as she's dying because she does have a family because they spent a lot of the first act of this film establishing that she sees the Avengers as her family and establishing that she sees protecting the world as the most important thing to her. And to me, that's what her death was. And that to me was while there are definitely some valid criticisms over how she was treated and I didn't get enough of her arc, the arc we did get I felt like was very entertaining and satisfying. I want more of it, not because it wasn't, we didn't, not because it wasn't enough to be convincing, but because it was good. And that's why I want more of it. Yeah. Uh, one thing I will say though, um, if y'all don't have anything to disagree with me on about um, Black Widow is the one thing that does take me out of the film in this scene is how forced it is to set up Clint and Natasha being the ones on Vormir, like, okay, it makes sense for the, the, how the soul stone works. It makes sense that you send these two in terms of how the characters were act. I am not convinced that rocket raccoon would give two people that have never been to space, his ship, and then just effed off to somewhere else that he doesn't need to be like in terms of with, with these characters, not knowing how to get the soul stone to me, it makes sense that rocket would have been the one flying somebody preferably someone from space like Nebula to Vormir to get the soul stone. It's yeah. one of the few instances of this film where I think how the care, the decisions the characters would have made didn't make sense for the sake of advancing the plot. And I think the MCU does a generally a good job of avoiding that. And I think it's small in this case, but I do think this is a case of that. That doesn't make sense. They just had to get, I don't, I don't know really? that I agree with you on that. I think, yeah, because I think the circumstances that Rocket is in, he's going to be less picky about loaning his ship because he's on a mission to restore the Infinity Stone so he can bring back the rest of his family. And I think that he'll do, like the motto is, I think he'll do whatever it takes to make that happen. Especially considering what two other characters in that group of 12 before the time high starts are you going to pair together that could successfully get the soul stone? But that's my point is the they stone? don't know. I know that that's why the writers wrote them to get the soul stone because there's not another pairing. And in fact, there was a said that. But from yeah. the decisions the characters would make, they don't know how to get the soul stone. So the pairing they send there doesn't matter. Yeah, I guess that's true. But I still think Rocket would have been cool with it. Like, just lo loaning them the ship. Because he knows it's going to come back. Or at least he assumes it's going to come back. Okay, so I mean, they're, I all, they're, all, <laughs> they're all time traveling. 
Yeah, they're enough. all time traveling, so you have to hope that everyone's coming Thomas's back. Go. That's kind of a lame one. But also, yeah. hear me out here. Rocket and Natasha have spent the past five years working together. At that big meeting at the beginning of the movie, Rocket is part of that yeah. panel where he's talking to Natasha, like telling her updates and things like that. So there is a relationship specifically between Natasha yeah, and true. Rocket at this point. Not love, though. Like, like the whole point of the Soul Stone is that you give up something you love. Like, I'd, I'm not I'd saying that Rocket is, other... is. I'm saying that Rocket trusts her with. Yeah, no, that makes some sense. Oh, oh, okay, I got you. <laughs> oh, yeah, that does. Make that sense. is what you were pairing I, them no, up. No, I was I'm like, not shipping. You gonna throw the rocket off the I'm cliff? Not shipping Rocket, and what I'm saying is, <laughs> okay. they've been friends for five years. They've been working together for five years. It makes sense. He would loan her his ship. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but just not so, so much Hawkeye. He doesn't trust him because they, they haven't met. Right, he doesn't know Hawkeye. But he <laughs> what knows I was going Hawkeye. to say was, yeah, the only other pairing that I think works there still involves Natasha, and I think I that's Natasha that. and Steve, and they're not, and they weren't going to put them in that situation. So I don't know. It's if it's anyone like thinks of another pairing that would work, of a movie lay it that on I me, think but... is incredibly well done. So I had to get it out. Hmm. Yeah. So Barton awakens with the soul stone in hand, angry. We go back to the Avengers compound. The entire team returns to the landing platform seconds after they left. Everyone is excited the mission was a success before Bruce notices Clint is alone. Steve says she didn't make it, and Banner punches the floor in grief. The original Avengers gather around the lake to discuss and grieve the loss of Natasha, the first time they've lost one of their own. Tony asks if she had a family, and Steve says, yeah, us. Thor insists they try and get her back, but Clint explains the Soul Stone told him that she could not be retrieved. He asserts, it was supposed to be me. Bruce, silent this time, angrily throws a bench across the lake, saying, we have to make it worth it. We have to. Tony constructs an Iron Man adjustable gauntlet capable of holding the Infinity Stones. The group argues who, over who will use the gauntlet. Thor insists it should be himself to make up for his mistakes, and Hulk reasons it should be himself since he is full of gamma radiation, similar to the stones. Stark reminds him to bring everything back, but change nothing that has happened in the past five years. Nebula from 2014, who is with the group at this point, sneaks away to activate the quantum platform. Sanctuary leaps out of the quantum realm and through the roof of the compound. Hulk says everybody comes home and puts on the gauntlet, taking tremendous pain, but he is able to withstand it. Hulk manages to put his fingers together and snap, taking massive damage to his arm. As the Avengers tend to the injured banner, Barton receives a call from his previously dusted wife. Lang notices birds returning outside the window and begins to tell the team the time heist worked. Before Banner, before Banner notices Sanctuary hovering above the skylight. Sanctuary opens fire, obliterating the compound. And that's where we're going to end this week's episode. Chris is so stressed. <laughs> My God, what's going to happen next? Join us next week for the stunning conclusion. <laughs> Yep. Dark one, y'all. We got in we got in deep and, with some and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. and it started really Thank fun you. at first, but it really like it really <laughs> got serious towards the end. You know, no, I, I I feel like this podcast was a was a love letter. <laughs> Sadness. To a serious conversation. The second act of Avengers Endgame. <laughs> 
seriously though, thank you for making it through all of these podcasts, yeah. but this one in particular, Especially we got in yep. we got in real deep a lot of times. So yeah. thanks for making it through to the end. We appreciate you all. Yeah, I'm gonna open a bottle of wine after we get off. <laughs> what happens when we stop podcasting? You know what? <laughs> uh They'll get there. They'll get there. Thank you, everyone, once again for listening. We've got one more of these Endgame episodes, and then we've got a a Far From Home episode, and then who knows where we're going next. I think a little Spider-Verse may be in action. Oh, God, yes. I think that's a pretty obvious and easy decision to make, and then we can leave what to do after that to future us. Yeah. Yeah, let's leave it to those guys. But that's going to do it for everyone here. If you want to email the show, email it assemblyrequiredcast at gmail.com. We are at assemblycast on Twitter. You can find all the folks here at PhilKid3, GatorSax2010, D underscore Peaches, and at ABCD Eduardo1. That's going to do it for myself, for Peaches, for Robbie, for Chris. Join us next week for part three, where we finish up Endgame. We love you 3000. Bye, everybody. Excelsior. Oobly boobly. from the twin sons of Tatooine. Uh, we are now close on the mouth of the Sarlacc pit. After a beat, the gloved Mandalorian armor gauntlet of Boba Fett grabs onto the sand outside the Sarlacc pit and the feared bounty hunter pulls himself from the maw of the sand beast. Okay, this is and exactly- And we realize uh, that he survived his fall uh, during the battle at Jabba's uh, palace ship. We pan outside to a nearby asteroid where we see, and please allow me to finish this because it's gonna seem like a bit of a jump. We see Thanos, who was the oh, villain on. teased at the end of the first Avengers movie. Now Thanos, as you know, owns the Infinity Gauntlet, which has the time gem, the mind gem, the power gem, the space gem, and the reality gem. If he holds the reality gem, that means he can jump from different realities. This will be our link from to the Marvel Universe, from the Star Wars Universe.